If Roe versus Wade is overturned, one anti-abortion organization says it will still have things to accomplish. We are going to work with the states to see what kind of legislation they can pass. We are going to continue our educational efforts. The president of the National Right to Life Committee coming up. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead in this midterm year, Democratic Party leaders see the Supreme Court's threat to abortion rights as an issue that could drive young voters to the polls in November. While young people today may not have technically lived without Roe on the books, that doesn't mean that young people don't know what it feels like to live without access to abortion. And U.S. employers added 428,000 jobs last month as the unemployment rate held steady at 3.6 percent. Wall Street numbers are coming up next. It's 4.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. New Mexico is preparing for the possibility of extremely critical fire weather conditions in the coming hours. Under high winds and high temperatures, several fires that, according to the National Interagency Fire Center, have burned a combined 295,000 acres could get bigger. At more than 168,000 acres, the Calf Canyon fire is the single biggest in the United States. Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham is appealing to residents in the path of the fires in New Mexico to evacuate, warning that starting tomorrow morning, there will be 100 straight hours of red flag conditions. 100 hours of wind and extreme temperatures is extremely concerning. Scientists say wildfire seasons are getting longer and more ferocious because of extreme weather conditions fueled by climate change. Consequential wins today for Republicans in Georgia. A judge says Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene should remain on the ballot. A small group of voters filed a formal challenge to her candidacy, saying she encouraged the January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol last year. Here's WABE Sam Greenglass. The decision by a state judge says the plaintiffs failed to prove that Greene engaged in insurrection. They had asked the state to disqualify Greene from running, citing a provision in the Constitution that forbids members members of Congress who support an insurrection from serving in office. Green testified under oath last month, answering many questions about the days leading up to January 6th with, I don't recall. Now it's up to Georgia's Secretary of State to decide whether to follow the judge's recommendation. There's no indication he won't. The plaintiffs could try to appeal the ruling, but it's unlikely she'll be knocked off the ballot. For NPR News, I'm Sam Greenglass in Atlanta. In Florida, federal appeals courts reinstating portions of a state voting law that a lower court judge ruled discriminatory against black voters. An Alabama federal judge is hearing evidence for a second day on whether to block a state law that would ban gender-affirming medical treatments for transgender youth. Here's NPR's Debbie Elliott. Lawyers for Alabama are presenting expert witnesses who question the consensus among key medical groups that gender-affirming medicines, including puberty blockers and hormone therapy, are an accepted standard of care for transgender youth. Toronto psychologist James Cantor testified that a majority of youth diagnosed with gender dysphoria later desist and identify with the sex they were assigned at birth. Families of transgender youth and the U.S. Justice Department Department are asking a federal judge to stop enforcement of the law, arguing it will do irreparable harm to transgender youth. Alabama's law would criminalize gender-affirming medical treatments or surgeries for anyone under 19. Debbie Elliott, NPR News, Montgomery. 
This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts officials are promising to remove a pile of construction debris that contains asbestos from near a public housing complex in Chelsea. The material comes from a construction project several miles away in Saugus, and the state says it's been stored in this spot since last summer. More from WBUR's Miriam Wasser. Chelsea has long suffered a disproportionate burden of harmful industries and pollutants, and its residents, many of whom are lower-income immigrants, have high rates of asthma, heart and lung disease, and cancer. So learning that the state let a pile of debris with asbestos sit uncovered a few hundred feet from where people live infuriated Roseanne Bongiovanni. Bongiovanni is the executive director of Green Roots, a Chelsea-based environmental nonprofit. It is just so frustrating and ridiculous and incomprehensible that the state of Massachusetts is doing this in 2022. The head of the State Department of Transportation apologized for not telling Chelsea officials about the debris and vowed to remove it as soon as possible. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Miriam Wasser. Governor Charlie Baker says he expects the state legislature to approve some kind of tax cut before the session ends this summer. Today, Baker renewed his pitch for tax relief in a speech to business leaders. He said the state brought in $2 billion more in taxes last month than expected. Earlier this spring, the House rejected Baker's tax proposals, but this week the Senate president asked Senate leadership to pursue a tax relief package. Today, Boston University announced its largest tuition hike in 14 years. However, BU President Robert Brown says the four and a quarter percent increase in the fall will not keep up with inflation and will not cover rising costs and salary increases. Earlier this spring, Boston College decided to increase its tuition by nearly four percent. The UMass system is raising tuition by two and a half percent. Heavy on the clouds for the remainder of the day today and overnight tonight, falling to the mid 40s. Some strong winds around. Tomorrow, clouds keep on keeping on. Windy and wet showers off and on. Highs only reaching 50. Sunday, still cloudy, right about 50. 59 degrees now in the Boston area at 4.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Aspiration, working to help people combat climate change with a credit card that lets them plant a tree with every purchase. One card, zero carbon footprint. Aspiration.com slash credit. Aspiration Financial, LLC. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Adrian Florido. If the Supreme Court does overturn Roe v. Wade next month, it'll be a huge win for groups opposed to abortion. Overturning that landmark decision has been the motivating force for groups like the National Right to Life Committee for decades. So if they do notch this victory, we wanted to know where will they focus their efforts next. Carol Tobias is president of the National Right to Life Committee, and she joins us now. Welcome. Thanks, Adrian. The leaked draft of the Supreme Court opinion overturning Roe is just that, a draft. But assuming it holds, uh, where does your organization go next? So we are going to work with the states to see what kind of legislation they can pass. We are going to continue our educational efforts because um, we realize that there are still many in the country that are unaware of the humanity of the unborn child, or maybe they are, but don't quite see the need for protecting that innocent life. So we still have a a big battle ahead of us. What kind of abortion restrictions does your group, the NRLC, support? A a total ban on abortions? A a ban after conception? Our ideal position would be abortion only if the mother's life is in danger. Our reasoning is that we want to protect as many babies as we can as soon as we can. 
So some of the states are not going to be where we are, obviously, but we'll see if there you know, are some, some limits, some protections that we can get through. What about uh, forms of contraception like IUDs that can theoretically prevent an embryo from implanting into the uterus? We would encourage women to talk to their medical provider and if this is, you know, any form that is, it's labeled contraception, but it might actually work after uh, fertilization has taken place and a new life is forming, we would encourage them to talk to the medical provider and find out how it works. And if it is going to end the life of that uh, newborn being, then don't do it. But will you be advocating for forms of contraception like IUDs to be criminalized? That, that, quite frankly, is one of the ones. It, it's hard to really know what, what is happening, and, and I don't know how that would ever be regulated or monitored. You know, we're just going to encourage people to choose life for their babies. Uh, do you think that women who violate abortion bans in their state uh, should go to prison? No. No. In many cases, quite frankly, they are the victims. Many of them uh, will say that they got the abortion because their partner pushed them to do it. We certainly know that there are women who go through it knowing full well what is happening. Our goal is to get abortionists to stop killing babies. We, we have never advocated for penalties for women. People choose abortions for many reasons. Some women just don't want a baby. Some don't have the means or support structure uh, to raise a child. And yet our country doesn't have a whole lot of federal policies like family leave, guaranteed daycare, preschool, a child tax credit that a lot of advocates believe would actually make it possible for Americans to raise children, especially middle income and low income families. What kind of lobbying have you done for these sorts of uh, family friendly policies? I'm actually pleased that we are starting to see much more action from the states in programs to help a woman in, in need. Uh, there are several of them, like uh, Missouri has a, a Show Me Healthy Babies program that would prov you know, provide um, health care and support for a woman and a, a newborn child. Um, Oklahoma and Arkansas have Every Mom Matters Act. Uh, we've got states like Texas and South Carolina um, actually providing health care for uh, a new mom and her baby, you know, for the first uh, couple years of, of life, in-home nursing visits to make sure that everything is going okay. Um, there is certainly more that we can and should do so that no woman would think abortion is her, her best or only option. The, the anti-abortion movement has been very closely aligned with the Republican Party, which generally has rejected strengthening the social safety net. Uh, do you think that Republicans will have an obligation to do that if Roe is overturned? I think we are seeing much more receptiveness uh, from them in, in those lines. And I know for much of it, it's, you know, we only have so much money and, you know, how is it going to be spent? Uh, we would certainly encourage them to make uh, moms and uh, their babies a priority when they're looking at various programs. Carol Tobias is president of the National Right to Life Committee. Thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks, Adrian. We got some good news and some not so good news about the job market today. Employers are adding a lot of jobs and wages are going up at a rapid pace. 
But those wage gains are not keeping pace with the high cost of living, and there's a danger that rising wages will make inflation even worse. NPR Scott Horsey joins us with details on today's jobs report. Hey, Scott. Hi. Uh, job growth has been really strong for some time. Now, what stands out about April's numbers? That's right. U.S. employers added more than 400,000 jobs for the 12th month in a row in April. It's been a really remarkable string of gains. That's more than double the average number of jobs we were adding in the year before the pandemic. Last month saw lots of hiring in factories, in restaurants, in warehouses. Hotels added 22,000 jobs in April. Burrett Patel is a second-generation hotel owner in Sarasota, Florida. He says hotels need more front desk clerks and housekeepers because a lot more people are traveling right now, and so more of his rooms are booked. Rates are through the roof. People want to travel, and so instead of going abroad, or they're really enjoying the beaches and the national parks, the state parks, and you know, people just want to get out. Like a lot of employers, Patel says he's boosting wages to attract the workers he needs. Average wages in April were up 5.5% from a year ago. So this remains a, a really hot job market. In fact, it's a little too hot for the inflation watchdogs at the Federal Reserve. Why too hot? What, what is the Fed worried about? The Fed's concerned that employers are going to pass these costs of higher wages along in higher prices. And that could make inflation, which is already at a 40-year high, even worse. That's why this week the Fed uh, raised interest rates uh, by half a percentage point in hopes of cooling off inflation. Uh, the Fed also telegraphed additional uh, similar-sized rate hikes could be in store in June and July. And how will rising interest rates affect the job market? Well, the rising cost of borrowing is designed to temper demand, and we might be getting a sneak preview in the housing market. The average cost of a home mortgage has jumped sharply in anticipation of the Fed's actions. It's now above five and a quarter percent. And Robert Dietz, who's chief economist with the National Association of Home Builders, says the industry is feeling that pinch. The housing market is definitely slowing at this point. Uh, the, the rise in mortgage rates has harmed housing affordability, particularly for prospective first-time buyers. It's not just the rate itself, but it's the down payment. Now, Dietz doesn't expect a collapse in housing, but, you know, construction companies added only 2,000 workers last month, which is a big slowdown from the months before. Some other businesses that thrived during the pandemic, like Amazon and Clorox, have also reported a slowdown in their need for workers. And this is kind of what the Fed wants to see throughout the economy, some cooling of demand and inflation, but not so much cooling that it tips the economy into recession. So on balance, was this a good jobs report? It was. It was very good. Uh, the unemployment rate held steady at 3.6 percent. That's the lowest since the start of the pandemic. Unemployment among African-Americans and Latinos actually declined. One disappointing piece in this report, though, the labor force actually shrank in April after big gains in February and March. You'd like to see the labor force growing to provide some additional breathing room in what remains a very, very tight labor market. It's NPR's chief economics correspondent, Scott Horsley. Thank you. You're welcome. In a new French film, a 1960s college student discovers that she must cope with a life-changing event almost entirely on her own. Critic Bob Mandelo says that the film, Happening, is a period piece that speaks to this particular moment. The French countryside, 1963. Anne and her gal pals are at a university party, Anne being the only one who talks to the boys, to a fireman, actually, who's crashed the party. He's handsome enough, but Anne's a little preoccupied, and the next day, when she goes to the doctor, a quick pelvic exam reveals why. 
You've had sexual relations, the doctor asks. Vous avez déjà eu des rapports? Non, jamais. No, never, she says. A boyfriend? Vous n'avez pas de fiancée? But now he knows better. Removing his gloves, he's matter of fact. You're pregnant, he tells her. Vous êtes enceinte, mademoiselle. She sits up in alarm. Do something, she whispers. Faites quelque chose. And now it's his turn for alarm. You can't ask me that, nor anybody else, he tells her. The law is unsparing. Anyone who helps you can end up in jail. Anne, played by newcomer Anna Maria Vartolome, steals herself. Her university career is just beginning. Having a child would derail it, but who can she turn to? Not her girlfriends, who she correctly guesses would shame her if they knew. Other doctors? Dangerous. Her parents? Not after their sacrifices so she could study. The one guy at school she's close to? That's a real mistake. As the weeks tick by, director Audrey Dewan, working from an autobiographical novel by Annie Ernaux, shows Anne growing ever more desperate, in the library afraid to be seen even reading about pregnancy, distracted by worry to the point that she's likely to be kicked out of school. If she could find an abortion provider, she'd have to sell her most precious belongings, her books, to pay for an agonizing procedure, and even then her travails wouldn't be over, either physical or psychological. As she tells a doctor who is sympathetic but still can't help her, she wants someday to have children, but not instead of a life. Anne's is a wrenching journey that feels at first as if it's going to play like a historical object lesson, but Bartolome brings such urgency to the heroine that nothing about what happens in happening feels past tense. Given current events, it feels all too timely. I'm Bob Mandela. Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Coming up on All Things Considered, the U.S. has not had an ambassador to Ukraine for three years. President Biden has now named a veteran diplomat to fill the post. In business news, a Boston-based home security company is expanding. Simply Safe announced today it plans to hire 100 more workers in Boston this year. That's a 20% expansion. Companies raised more than $200 million to support that expansion. Simply Safe sells home protection technology, including sensors and cameras. Wall Street numbers coming up next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bicon Dental Implants, offering patients a same-day solution for missing teeth, often avoiding surgical bone grafting procedures. 617-524-3900. Wall Street stocks fell, but not as dramatically as they did yesterday. The Dow gave up a third of a percent today, 99 points, to close at 32,899. This was the sixth straight week the Dow has had a losing week. S&P lost more than a half percent to end the session at 4123. The NASDAQ fell nearly 1.5% to close at 12,145. Details coming up on Marketplace at 6.30. It's 4.19. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Stanhope Framers, Back Bay in Somerville, celebrating 50 years of handmade museum-quality frames through sustainable practices. StanhopeFramers.com And Boston Ballet's Mindscape, Featuring new works by choreographers William Forsyth and Yorma Ello. Live May 5th to 15th. BostonBallet.org.
Bruins are hoping a homecoming will turn their luck around. Tonight, they host the Carolina Hurricanes at the Garden in Game 3 of their first-round playoff series. It's the first home game in the best-of-seven series. Red Sox start up another series at Fenway tonight as the White Sox come to town. Nathan Navaldi throws the first pitch at 7:10. It'll be Vince Velasquez for Chicago. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, committed to helping businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all in one place. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. And from Proven Winners Color Choice, offering flowering shrubs. From hydrangeas to lilacs to evergreens, the full collection is at ProvenWinnersColorChoice.com NPR. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Adrian Florido. And I'm Ari Shapiro. The acting U.S. ambassador to Ukraine is preparing for two big transitions. First, the embassy is about to return to Kyiv. They evacuated to Poland early in the war. And the other big change? President Biden has nominated a veteran diplomat to fill the post that's been vacant for three years. In the meantime, the acting U.S. ambassador is shuttling back and forth across the Ukraine-Poland border, and she joins us now from the Polish city of Zhezhov. Kristina Kvin, it is good to talk to you again. Hello, Ari. It's great to join you today. You've been a U.S. diplomat in Ukraine for more than two years, and this week you returned for the first time since Russia started its assault in late February. What was it like for you to set foot back in the country? It was amazing to be back. Uh, I had uh, been wanting to go back since we left, and I was thrilled that my security folks told me that the situation was such that that it was safe to go back. We did a day trip to Lviv. I met with a wide variety of folks, including the mayor, the governor, and also some of the uh, international organizations and NGO implementers of the humanitarian assistance that has been flowing in. So it was a terrific trip, and I look forward to taking more of them soon. Russia was driven back from Kyiv about a month ago in early April. Why return to the embassy now? And when I say now, I'm actually curious when exactly you are planning to return to the embassy, because that's been a little unclear. Well, we hope to return in the next few weeks. Uh, we're doing our final assessments. That would allow us to determine that the security situation is uh, permissive to go back. Uh, even though uh, the Russians did pull back from Kyiv, of course, it uh, continues to be uh, hit by missiles. And uh, I would say that the situation is still not 100% safe. So we have been doing careful reviews of the situation to make sure that when we do go back, that we can be as safe as possible. Can you give us an example of something you're looking forward to being able to do from the U.S. Embassy in Kyiv that you haven't been able to do remotely from Poland? I think the most important thing is to be able to meet with Ukrainian leaders face to face. Of course, we've continued to talk uh, on the phone, on uh, video conferencing, but it's not the same as sitting down with someone face to face and being able to have an in-person conversation. So I think that's going to be the most valuable thing for me uh, is to be able to sit down with my contacts, most of whom I've known a long time. So they're, I, I consider many of them friends, not just contacts and really have a good conversation and get a sense of where things are. The last time we spoke, you talked about the many people in Ukraine who you're close to. Are they all safe as far as you know? 
Well, um, unfortunately, very sadly, we lost one of my bodyguards. Uh, he was oh. fighting in the East in the military and he was killed uh, by the Russians. My so uh, it, it, it's incredibly um, sad and tragic for the embassy and also obviously for his family. Uh, but he was a hero. I mean, he was fighting in the East for his country when he was killed. And um, so so I would say that the death has touched us even, even in the embassy. Uh, and we don't take for granted. We have many other embassy employees who are fighting. And so we do not take mm. any of that for granted. And we think of them every day and send them our best wishes. Wow. Could you share his name with us? Uh, his name was Velodia. We don't use last names just to, for the privacy of the family, but uh, his name was Velodia. Now, President Biden has nominated Bridget Brink to be ambassador and take over for you. She still has to be confirmed by the Senate. But what is your first piece of advice for her going to be after you've filled this job in an acting capacity during such an eventful time of the U.S.-Ukraine relationship? Uh, rest up and get lots of sleep. <laughs> <laughs> well, you still it's can. It's a very busy job, especially <laughs> these days. Uh, listen, I've known Bridget for over 15 years. She and I have worked together in the past. She's fantastic. Uh, she's high energy. She's smart. She knows Ukraine and she knows the whole region. And uh, she'll uh, be a terrific ambassador when confirmed by the Senate. So honestly, I don't have to give her a lot of advice because I think she knows the reason the region so well already uh, that it, she can just step right in and, and be fully effective on the first day. Are you planning to stay at the embassy in Ukraine after she's confirmed? Yeah, actually, you know, it's a three year assignment. and My three year assignment is is up this summer. Mm. So I will probably stay just long enough to help her transition and then move on. Now, the last time you and I spoke, I met you in the Polish hotel that's been your base of operations. And, and you noted that although you have a lot of diplomatic experience, you had not served in a war zone before. Uh, it's definitely a different kettle of fish. I mean, there, there are uh, things you need to learn and challenges you need to take on that are different than in uh, a country that is at peace. Um, I've learned a lot of military te uh, terminology that I didn't know before. I've learned a lot about weapons that I didn't know before. Uh, and obviously, I, I would say that all of us on my team here are imbued with the feeling that what we're doing is incredibly important for um, for the health and safety and um, survival of people. And that really motivates us. So whether it's helping to provide more weapons so that the Ukrainians can defend themselves or provide humanitarian support either to those that are inside Ukraine but internally displaced or in need of food, water, and basics, uh, or people who have had to leave Ukraine um, and helping them out outside of the country. All of those things, um, everything we do every day is really focused on on helping people and, and, and uh, supporting them in a very physical way that I think we don't normally do in a normal environment. So it really motivates us and is one of the reasons that we keep going, you know, more than 12 hours a day, I would say for most of us, because we feel that, that, that our, our work is really helping people on the ground. When you look at the state of the war at this point, do you see a way for Russia to win? Um, you know, Already, frankly, Russia has failed. Russia uh, came into the war thinking that they could quickly overrun Ukraine, that they could perhaps topple the government. Uh, they certainly tried to do that at the beginning, that they could take Kyiv uh, and other strategic cities. And for the most part, they failed. Uh, they've been driven back away from Kyiv. 
President Zelensky and his government are still in place, working hard and fully functional. And now uh, Russia has had to rethink what their objectives are, and they are definitely significantly smaller than they set out to be. So um, uh, do I think Russia can win? I think Russia's already lost, certainly if you judge it by what their initial, uh, initial objectives were. That doesn't mean, though, that uh, Ukraine doesn't have a hard fight ahead of it and that Russia will stop trying uh, sometime soon. So that's why we continue to send in weapons uh, and other material and supplies to Ukraine to help them continue to fight the fight against Russia and hopefully drive them out of the country completely. That's certainly, I know, what Ukraine's um, objective is, and we want to help them in meeting that objective. Christina Kveen is the acting U.S. ambassador to Ukraine. Thank you for speaking with us once again. Thank you, Ari. It was good to see you again. Schools are struggling to keep pace with inflation. The rising costs of energy and food are eating into already tight budgets, raising concerns about programs, upkeep, and staffing. That's Monday on All Things Considered. Tune in on your radio or ask your smart speaker to play NPR or your station by name. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. The last known survivors of the 1921 Tulsa race massacre have learned a lawsuit against the city of Tulsa can move forward. That story is coming up. Also, generational divides on the issue of abortion. Cloudy skies have moved in for the weekend. Tonight, overcast, some strong winds, lows in the mid-40s. Tomorrow should be damp, showers off and on, some gusty winds up to about 30 miles an hour. Highs around 50 tomorrow and then not too much change for Sunday, just a little bit drier. Still windy and still gray, still right around 50. Boston Bruins host the Carolina Hurricanes tonight for playoff action at the Garden, and over at Fenway, Red Sox open up a series with the White Sox. It's 4.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Volante Farms in Needham, celebrating spring with their Crescent Ridge ice cream stand, now open year-round. Seasonal hours at volantefarms.com. And BU's Pardee School of Global Studies, offering a master's in global policy. Learn more at bu.edu slash school. I'm Asma Khalid. As a political reporter for NPR, I talk to people around the country about their lives and their needs. And I believe there is one thing we all need, a news source we trust. Tens of millions come to NPR for exactly that. When you donate your old car to this station, we'll turn it into tomorrow's news. The news you trust. Here's how. Learn more at WBUR.org cars. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. The Biden administration continues to push back on reports that the United States is providing intelligence on the location of Russian military leaders or the targeting decisions of the Ukrainian military. Pentagon spokesperson John Kirby says the U.S. is not the sole source of information to Ukraine. They get intelligence from other nations as well. Um, And they have a pretty robust intelligence collection capability of their own. I mean, they've been fighting this war 
against Russia for eight years. It's not like they are completely blind to the way Russia organizes itself and the way the Ru Russia conducts itself on the battlefield. The White House is increasing the pressure on Congress to approve President Biden's request for an additional $33 billion in assistance to Ukraine, which includes more money for weapons, ammunition and other defense systems. Wall Street posted another day of losses. NPR's Scott Horsley reports all of the major indices traded lower today after another month of solid job gains. U.S. employers added 428,000 jobs in April as the unemployment rate held steady at 3.6 percent, matching its lowest level since the start of the pandemic. The economy's now replaced nearly 95 percent of the jobs that were lost when the coronavirus struck in the spring of 2020. Employers have added more than 400,000 jobs in each of the last 12 months. They likely would have added even more had they had more workers to fill those jobs. The number of people working or looking for work actually shrank last month. With workers scarce, employers are having to pay more. Average wages are up 5.5% over the last year. That worries the Federal Reserve, which is concerned that rising wages could add to already high inflation. Scott Horsley, Empire News, Washington. At the close on Wall Street today, the Dow was down 98 points. You're listening to NPR News in Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu is backing the school committee's decision to close the Mission Hill School in Jamaica Plain. She said today the closure is long overdue. An independent report commissioned by the school district found years of sexual misconduct, bullying, and academic failure at the school for grades K through 8. Mayor Wu says that she understands this is a tough time for families, but she says the city has a plan to place all students in other schools that they will be comfortable with and that will meet their needs. The town of Brookline and several of its residents have filed an appeal of a decision that prevents the town from banning the use of natural gas in new construction. Attorney General Moore Healy decided the ordinance Brookline wanted to enact violates state law. Jesse Gray is director of the climate advocacy group Zero Carbon MA, which supports the town's efforts. He says that the appeal to the Supreme Judicial Court will argue that Healy's rejection is based on outdated law. There's also state law that's newer that says that we have to reduce our emissions, and that is from a ruling from the SJC. And so she's saying we conflict with utility law, but utility law also conflicts with other state statutes. The Attorney General's office says it's still reviewing Brookline's complaint. Hundreds of Massachusetts nurses want better pay and more staffing to address what they say are worsening conditions on the job. A Massachusetts Nurses Association survey finds 83 percent of its nurses who were surveyed say hospital care is deteriorating. That's the highest percentage in the eight years the survey's been conducted. Association Vice President Marie Ritaco says that many in the profession are quitting. Nurses are exhausted, and they realize that there are other things that go into recruiting and retaining nurses, and that does include adequate and appropriate commensurate pay and benefits. Massachusetts Health and Hospital Association says hospitals have delivered high-quality care in the pandemic and are working hard to fill more than 20,000 open jobs. Massachusetts Secretary of Energy and Environmental Affairs is joining a renewable energy company. Katie Theoharides is leaving her post today. She announced she will become a regional head of offshore development for RWE Renewables next month. She will oversee all of its offshore wind projects for the East Coast. It's 4.35. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Mass Farmers Markets. Spring is here, and farmers markets are opening. Find an open market near you at massfarmersmarkets.org. 
Overcast for the remainder of the afternoon. This evening, overnight tonight, temperatures about the mid-40s. Showers off and on overnight, some strong winds. Then for tomorrow, more clouds, wet and windy. Showers off and on, highs only reaching 50. Sunday, overcast, maybe not any showers to speak of. Highs right about 50 degrees, 59 degrees now in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Mathnasium. Committed to boosting students' confidence, critical thinking, and math grades and scores with in-person or online instruction. Each student follows a customized learning plan. More at mathnasium.com. And from Fidelity. With Fidelity Income Planning, Fidelity looks at how much clients saved, how much they'll need, and helps them build a plan for cash flow so they can go from saving to living. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Adrian Florido. And I'm Ari Shapiro. A wildfire burning east of Santa Fe right now is the second biggest in New Mexico's recorded history. And it's not even peak fire season yet. Two fires have merged into one. The Hermit's Peak and Calf Canyon fires have already destroyed about 170 homes. Michelle Lujan Grisham is the governor of New Mexico and joins us now. Welcome. Thank you for having us, Ari. I appreciate paying attention to this emergency. Nearly 16,000 homes are under evacuation orders, and I know you have toured some of the shelters that are housing people. Can you tell us about somebody you met in one of those visits? Absolutely. You know, there are folks who have been evacuated that are on land grants that have been held by those families for 400 years. Uh, And it really puts into perspective what these losses look like. And yet... They are organizing food drives. Uh, They are getting trained to help provide navigation to assistance. They are helping the world kitchen cook and deliver meals. They're incredible. And they have their whole families involved. And then I met a new New Mexican, uh, new in the context of, you know, 20 years as opposed to 400, who's alone and in a shelter, um, older gentleman who is um, really worried about whether or not we have the ability, and we really don't, uh, to make sure that his um, cats, who are both you know outdoor and indoor cats, are all right. Mm. And whether he can expect, if he's lucky enough to have a home to go to, will they be there? And you know, these are real issues that people are struggling through, and you can't provide enough comfort to someone in that space because we yeah. can't go look every day at those cats. It's too dangerous. This weekend, high winds are forecast, which could spread these fires really quickly. What's the state doing to prepare for that? Do you think you'll be able to contain this fire in spite of those weather conditions? Well, we have to do everything that we can. There's no way to say to any New Mexican, so I haven't, that there's no way we keep this fire from spreading. If we thought that was the case, then we wouldn't have mandatory evacuations and high-risk fire warnings. But the containment lines have been holding A ton of work has been done in preparation for this extreme weather event. We just have to hope that it's enough. And it's more difficult because of the smoke for us to be able to see it and be on it immediately. Yeah. President Biden's disaster declaration frees up federal aid for New Mexico. Is it going to be enough? How does it compare to the need? Oh, I'm going to tell you that what I know uh, from being a member of Congress and a governor, that none of the federal resources are enough. Now, that sounds angry, and it's not intended to be. 
They have very uh, prescriptive rules about what's available and how. You have to be in a real recovery phase, right? You're not actively fighting the fire. But people are evacuated now. They need food and shelter. They need hotel rooms. They need unemployment assistance, right? They need to be submitting their disaster reliefs. All of that, in my view, has to happen right away. And certainly the president agrees with us and they're leaning in between local, state, federal. And I have no doubt more appropriations are forthcoming from Congress. We are intending on making people as whole as we can. Big picture, the Western U.S. right now is in another historic drought, and climate change is expected to make fires like this one more common and more severe. So what can New Mexico and other states do to prepare for that future? We have to revise and revitalize our forest protection plans. Given the extreme heat, the extreme drought, and the winds Prescribed burning has to be narrowed and refined in a meaningful way, getting fuel out of the forest, trimming trees, and then taking them out. Uh, We have this sort of disconnect where you trim and then it's left on the ground. Can't do it. We have got to think about continual year-long forest health. And we don't do that in the context of a robust federal and state partnership. I expect New Mexico to lead that for the entire Southwest. That's New Mexico Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham, a Democrat. Thank you for speaking with us. Thank you. I appreciate the time today. A broad, multi-generational coalition of voters powered Democratic victories in the 2018 midterms and the 2020 presidential election. But with six months to go until this year's midterms, younger voters have soured on Democrats. Some party leaders hope that the prospect of a Supreme Court decision overturning Roe v. Wade could re-energize them. NPR's Juana Summers reports. After a draft opinion suggested that the Supreme Court could overturn Roe v. Wade, President Biden and other Democrats called on voters to elect pro-abortion rights elected officials in November. For Erika Bennett-Scott, those words fell flat. It didn't feel like an urgency for the White House, uh, a fight that they want to, like, get out in front of. Bennett Scott is the executive director of Mississippi Votes, a youth advocacy group, Her state's only abortion provider is at the center of the case that could strike down the landmark law. The rest of the country is going to wake up in Mississippi the day Roe v. Wade is overturned. Democrats are hoping the news will give them momentum in the fight for control of Congress, where the party is defending slim majorities, and Biden is facing diminished enthusiasm among a number of key groups, including the young voters he overwhelmingly won in 2020. Polling shows that most young people oppose completely overturning Roe v. Wade. This is LaFonza Butler, the head of EMILY's List. We have got to, in my opinion, connect these generations so that the experiences of pre-Roe versus Wade can be made much more clear and tangible to young voters, you know, who haven't lived a time without Roe versus Wade being the law of the land. While young people today may not have technically lived without Roe on the books, that doesn't mean that young people don't know what it feels like to live without access to abortion. That's Nicole Hensel. She's the executive director of New Era Colorado. This fight is about power. It's about control and the ability to control other people's bodies. And that is something that young people are very fearful of um, and also energized um, to resist. But she also said that while the prospect of the Supreme Court striking down Roe is launching young people to action, that action doesn't always equal voting. It could mean things like protesting, having conversations with family members or people in their communities, 
getting involved at the local level. If we want young people um, to mobilize for the midterms, then politicians can't pay lip service to these issues. They need to show that they're willing to take bold action. Hensel said she wants to see the Senate vote to codify abortion rights into law, something the Senate plans to hold a vote on next week. The legislation does not have the support to be enacted. There's a lot of anger and distrust in political institutions right now, but we know that we can't cede that ground. That's Melissa Styler, the advocacy director for Loud Light, a Kansas-based organization focused on engaging young people. In Kansas, the right to an abortion is currently protected by the state's constitution. But that could change in August when the state's voters have their say on a constitutional amendment. She says young voters are looking for unapologetic leadership. Every poll shows that the majority of voters do not want Roe overturned. And that is more real than ever. These are not hypothetical things. And facing headwinds in the midterms, Democrats will need a message that can mobilize these young voters to the polls in November. Juana Summers, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This week, a judge in Oklahoma ruled that a lawsuit against the city of Tulsa for its role in the 1921 race massacre can go forward. The plaintiffs include the last three known survivors who lived through the attack as children more than a century ago. Reporter Chris Polanski of member station KWGS was in the courtroom for the judge's ruling. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So this massacre uh, from over 100 years ago, uh, remind us what happened. Sure. Um, In 1921, a mob of white Tulsans attacked the black neighborhood of Greenwood, which was pretty well known in its time for being a district of black wealth and culture. You've probably heard of it being called Black Wall Street. This mob destroys virtually the entire neighborhood, looting homes and stores, setting fires, and they kill as many as 300 people. Afterwards, the city and insurance companies reject claims for compensation for the victims. There are even some explicit calls for the neighborhood not to be allowed to be rebuilt. And the neighborhood never does build back into what it was, and victims are never given restitution. So let's fast forward to this week. Uh, What is this lawsuit seeking? So the plaintiffs include descendants of massacre victims as well as the three last known living survivors. There's Hughes Van Ellis, they call him Uncle Red, he's 101, and Viola Fletcher and Leslie Benningfield Randall are each 107. Wow. They're suing the city, the state of Oklahoma, the Oklahoma National Guard, the local Chamber of Commerce, among others, all under Oklahoma's public nuisance statute. They're saying these organizations aided and abetted the massacre creating a nuisance in Greenwood that continues to this day in the form of various inequities. They want the defendants to make it right with things like a victim's compensation fund and a tax exemption for descendants. The entities being sued, meanwhile, acknowledge the massacre was horrible, but say that there is no ongoing nuisance in a legal sense. Their attorneys kept saying in court that they're being asked to solve racism. Kenny Ucabula, one of the attorneys who filed the lawsuit, says that's not accurate. That is absolutely not what we're asking to do. If you look at the facts that we have alleged in our complaint and then look at the relief that we have requested, you can see that it is very clearly tied to the conduct of the massacre and the resulting harm that the defendants have instituted through their policies over the 100 years following the massacre. 
So as an example, the plaintiffs note a hospital was destroyed during the massacre and never rebuilt, and today health outcomes are demonstrably worse in Greenwood than in other parts of Tulsa. So they're asking for health care access in the neighborhood as part of their abatement plan. So after the judge's ruling allowing this lawsuit to go forward, where do things stand right now? Well, the city and other defendants had asked the judge to throw out the lawsuit entirely. As you noted, she did not do that. And so now the lawsuit moves ahead. And that means experts like historians, economists, archaeologists, developers even will likely be called upon to come to Tulsa and figure out a plan to present to the court to address these issues. Lead attorney Demario Solomon Simmons has been working on this for a long time, and he's trying to move quickly. He got a little emotional talking to reporters after the hearing. We want them to see justice in their lifetime. I personally have seen so many survivors die in my 20 plus years working on this issue. I just don't want to see the last three die without justice. So you can tell they're really hoping these survivors are around to see a win in court and some sense of justice, even if it has taken over a century. That's Chris Polanski of member station KWGS in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Thanks very much. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up next on WBUR is All Things Considered, a new novel that centers on heartache, loss, and how friendship can help us through that kind of pain. In the forecast, overcast skies pretty much all weekend long. Tonight, gray skies, some strong winds, lows in the mid-40s. Tomorrow should be damp with showers off and on, some gusty winds up to about 30 miles an hour, highs around 50. And then for Sunday, a little bit drier, still windy and still cloudy, right about 50 degrees again. Over at Fenway Park tonight, Red Sox open up a series with the White Sox. Nathan Navaldi pitches for Boston. Bruins host the Carolina Hurricanes tonight for playoff action at the Garden. Carolina has won the first two games in the best-of-seven series. And Boston College has a new men's hockey coach today. The Eagles named Greg Brown to the post. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Semester Off, an education and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college students and high school grads get back on track. Summer semester starts June 6th, semesteroff.com. The Boston Pops. Enjoy film nights, Broadway stars, a gospel performance, and a celebration of the musical legacy of Duke Ellington and Billy Strayhorn, bostonpops.org. And Fairbank and Perry Goldsmiths in Concord helping transform your outdated, unused jewelry into fresh and wearable pieces for everyday life. FairbankandPerry.com. Michael O'Brien, Senior Vice President of Gilbane, a WBUR underwriter. Gilbane and WBUR share a common core value, integrity. And like WBUR, Gilbane is committed to supporting our communities where we live and work. We also know that the thought leaders and decision makers we're trying to reach turn to WBUR for their news and information. So we share in supporting an institution that's important to all of us. That's why we're proud to support WBUR. To learn more about underwriting on WBUR, go to WBUR.org sponsorship. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Adrian Florido. Heartache, loss, and how friendship can help us get through that kind of pain. They are the themes at the center of a new novel. Its focus is on one particularly endearing friendship between Marcellus and Tova. Marcellus is an octopus who lives in captivity in a small-town aquarium on Washington's Puget Sound. Tova is a grieving 70-year-old who works the night shift cleaning the aquarium. 
The book is called Remarkably Bright Creatures, and its author, Shelby Van Pelt, joins us. Welcome, Shelby. Hello. Thank you for having me. Thanks for joining us. Marcellus, he's this octopus, but he's a real curmudgeon uh, stemming from his life in captivity. And yet he's charming. He's really funny. And, and we should note that he's not a talking octopus to the humans in your book. He's just an octopus in a fish tank. But you take us into his mind. Why? Well, I think it really started for me watching octopus videos on the Internet, which is a, a wonderful way to pass the time if you've never gone down that particular rabbit hole. You know, watching them, they're trying to escape. They get into all sorts of antics because they're just bored. And for me, watching those, I just really felt like there was a character in there. The frustration that an animal must feel when it almost must feel kind of superior to the beings that have captured mm. it. And octopuses are incredibly intelligent. I think we don't quite know the limits of how intelligent they are or could be because it's just such a different type of intelligence from what we, you know, as humans and mammals are, are used to. And so I think that's where the curmudgeonliness really started for me. It's just, you know, it, <laughs> it's kind of just a funny premise, but like, gosh, that guy must be so grumpy if he's trapped in there. <laughs> and he's sort of watching these humans outside of the, you know, on the other side of the fish tank, sort of fumbling around and he's sitting there scheming. He really does believe that he is the superior species. And... He has endless amounts of time to, to watch the humans, and he has a very sharp observational capacity. And I think he relieves a lot of his boredom by sort of, you know, creating these little soap opera moments and just really honing his observations and his thoughts about humans and how we operate. Well, one of the humans he observes is Tova, who's 70 years old. She just lost her husband to cancer. But more importantly, she lives you know, with the unsettled grief of, of her teenage son's disappearance at sea 30 years ago. And because of that, she's really stoic. She's emotionally inscrutable, as you describe her. And yet she seems open uh, to Marcellus, in part because maybe she sees his sadness? I think so. I think that she sees how they are similar. Tova has a, a very difficult time being open and honest with the humans in her life. But she has no problem talking to the the fish at the aquarium. You know, that's why she likes that job. She relates to animals really better than humans. And, you know, I think Marcellus is kind of stuck in his box, literally. Yeah. And Tova is stuck in hers metaphorically. She has no surviving heirs. She's approaching a time in her life when she's going to need help. And she's really honestly horrified at the thought of having to ask for that help from her community and from her friends. So she just sees herself kind of stuck in this in this box. And I think in befriending Marcellus, they both kind of help each other get out of that mindset of, you know, the sort of fatalistic, well, this is how it's going to be. This is how it's always been. It struck me that Marcellus isn't the only one in captivity here. You know, Tova lives in a small town. And yet everyone is, is always up in her business wanting to know what's going on with her. Uh, so she seems to understand him on that level, too. Absolutely. Yeah, the, you know, the whole town, fictional town of Soul Bay is really like an aquarium in and of itself. I introduced the character of the, the gossiping grocer. It was so much fun to write because he's the opposite of Tova. He wants to be in everyone's business. He's well-intentioned, but, you know, he's just that, you know, I feel like every, t every small town has that character. 
I think for me too, writing a lot of this book during COVID and during the early days of COVID when we were really kind of locked down and spending way more time in our house, it <laughs> I felt like I was in a box too. We all did, yeah. And yeah, so it was really interesting to to write these kind of trapped storylines, whether it's the octopus or, or Tova in the town or some of the other characters who are really just trapped by their own misconceptions of themselves during a time when, you know, we spent a lot of time just looking out the front window thinking, wow, where do we go from here? You know, Tova has a group of friends who really care about her, and, and yet she doesn't open up to them. She decides to sort of let an octopus be the, the creature that cracks her hard shell. You know, Tova gets in her own way there. Uh, you know, she's an imperfect character. She does have a group of friends that care about her a lot, but she almost won't let them because she's got this, you know, this kind of shell around her, this stoic nature, this, you know, she's can a do. She is, yes. And, um, you know, my, my grandmother was Swedish, was, was very much like Tova. The character is sort of based on my late grandmother in many ways. And, you know, I, I watched her do have a, a similar path to Tova in, in some ways toward the end of her life. Uh, my grandfather passed away and she lived alone and she just kept on keeping on, you know, cleaning all the time, you know, ironing the linens, just doing her thing. And I always kind of wondered, like, gosh, is she happy? Like, does this actually make her happy? I, you know, when she was alive, I kind of wished that I had been able to see her shell crack open a little bit more. And, you know, I never did. So I think writing a character like Tova was really exploring that for me. A lot of Tova's grief comes from not knowing what happened to her 18-year-old son. Marcellus finds a way to sort of help her through that. You know, I think the moment when she actually starts talking to him, she acknowledges to herself, hey, this is this is ridiculous. I'm doing the very thing that I have always been kind of judgmental about. I'm and talking to an octopus. Exactly. He's not talking you know, back. He's not talking back, but he, but he kind of is. I mean, he is in a way that's good enough for her to keep going. This is your first novel, um, but you've been writing for yes. a long time. <laughs> uh, how did writing during the pandemic change your writing? Writing for me during that time, the very you know dark time, was it was a, a joy. It was a balm almost, um, and I think that's part of the reason why Remarkably Bright Creatures turned out to be such a happy novel. I mean, it, it's it's funny. A lot of my short stories are are darker, and they're not necessarily this heartwarming vibe that I think comes through in the book. Yeah, but it, it couldn't have been anything else at that time. I mean, it just. Writing it during, you know, 2020, it, it had to be a happy story. Shelby Van Pelt, her new book, her first book, is called Remarkably Bright Creatures. Uh, thanks for taking the time to speak with us. Thank you so much for having me. The endemic phase. Some public health leaders are saying this might be the next chapter in the pandemic, even as a new COVID variant spreads. We'll unpack what endemic means for the coming months on our daily news podcast. Consider this from NPR. And you're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Alzheimer's Association, dedicated to the advancement of Alzheimer's research. At any given moment, research, discovery, and learning are happening. Learn more at alz.org. 
and from Fisher Investments, wealth management from dedicated advisors that tailor portfolios to each client's unique goals. More at fisherinvestments.com. Investing in securities involves the risk of loss. And from Data IQ, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business, designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U.com. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Walnut Hills School for the Arts, championing creativity, arts and academics for grades 9 to 12. Apply for 2022-23, walnuthillarts.org. And Dedham Community Theater, celebrating independent film, now showing The Duke and Petite Maman, and reopened every day. Visit dedhamcommunitytheater.com. I'm Ideas and Opinion Editor Franny Carr-Toth, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is investigating more than 100 cases of a mysterious form of hepatitis in young children that may be tied to a worldwide outbreak. Some of the children needed liver transplants. Five have died. It's Friday the 6th of May. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, we'll hear from abortion providers and an abortion support group leader about how they're preparing for the likely overturning of Roe v. Wade. In Houston and many cities around the country, there's been a sharp rise in the number of landlords filing for eviction. At the moment, we're seeing an outrageous number of filings every week, and I don't think it's going down, not only anytime soon, but maybe ever again. Wall Street fell again today, not as much as yesterday. It's 5.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The United Nations says it's evacuating Ukrainian civilians from a massive steel plant in the besieged port city of Mariupol. NPR's Joanna Kakissis reports the civilians are sheltering in tunnels underneath the plant along with hundreds of Ukrainian soldiers. The massive steel plant is the last Ukrainian holdout in Mariupol, which Russia claims it has occupied. Russian bombing and shelling have destroyed nearly every building in the port city. The UN's humanitarian chief calls Mariupol a series of bleak hellscapes. Russian troops have reportedly pushed into the steelworks tunnel to attack Ukrainian soldiers there. There are reports of heavy, bloody fighting. The wives and partners of Ukrainian soldiers fighting in Azovstal are pleading with the UN to also evacuate the fighters. They are staging protests in the city of Zaporizhia, where Azovstal evacuees are taken. Joanna Kakissis, NPR News, Zaporizhia, Ukraine. First Lady Jill Biden met with U.S. troops in Romania today on the first leg of a four-day trip through Eastern Europe. NPR Scott Detro has more from Bucharest. The very first stop of Biden's trip to two NATO allies that border Ukraine, a Romanian airbase on the Black Sea that hosts about 2,700 NATO service members. That's a sharp increase from the 900 stationed there before Russia invaded Ukraine in February. Biden served dinner to members of the U.S. Army and British Royal Air Force and made a point to mention that she had brought 20 bottles of ketchup with her. The base had recently run out. 
On Saturday, the First Lady will meet with Ukrainian refugees as well as educators at schools that have taken in Ukrainian students. Nearly 900,000 refugees have settled in Romania, a number second only to the amount in Poland. Biden will end the day in Slovakia. Scott Detrow, NPR News, Bucharest. With a leak of a draft opinion showing the Supreme Court via its conservative majority likely to vote to overturn Roe v. Wade, all sides in the abortion debate are weighing in ahead of the final ruling. Speaking today on NPR's All Things Considered, Carol Tobias of the National Right to Life Committee expressed her group's position, taking something of a wait-and-see approach. I'm not jumping up and down over the draft that was released because it's from February. Things could have changed. I certainly am going to wait until the decision comes down. Um, but we are, of course, looking at um, you know possible legislative activity in some of the states and, and certainly the elections in November. At the state level, a bill moving through the Louisiana legislature would classify abortions as homicides, while in Connecticut and other states, steps are being taken to shield those who offer abortions and related services. A down end to a tough week on Wall Street. The Dow fell 98 points today. The Nasdaq was down 173 points. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Federal officials recommend that people in half the counties in Massachusetts wear masks in indoor public spaces. A newly updated Centers for Disease Control map indicates the counties have high community levels of COVID. That's based on local case counts and hospital admissions. The recommendation for people to wear masks in indoor public places is for Berkshire, Franklin, Worcester, Middlesex, Suffolk, Norfolk, and Barnstable counties. More National Guard members in the state are now eligible for pay bonuses. Today, the state revived a program that provided extra pay for deployments in the pandemic. It had ended last summer. Now it's been expanded, so Guard members who've been deployed since March of 2020 are eligible for bonuses. The payments range from $250 to $500 per deployment. During the pandemic, the governor has activated the Guard to drive students to school, support COVID testing, and help hospitals and ambulance companies cope with surges. A former state senator Senator from Boston who went to federal prison for bribery is one step closer to running for her old Senate seat. Today, Diane Wilkerson filed paperwork to set up a campaign committee. Earlier this week, she filed nomination papers that would be required to appear on the ballot. Wilkerson held the Senate seat from 1993 until her arrest in 2008. She pleaded guilty and served 30 months. Mother's Day is Sunday, and it's usually one of the biggest days of the year for the state's restaurant industry. The Massachusetts Restaurant Association says restaurants are reporting record numbers of reservations for the big day. Association President and CEO Bob Luz expects this year to be great for business. We're expecting uh, numbers like we've seen pre-COVID across the industry and have high expectations for a a terrific Mother's Day. Lowe's is also hopeful that outdoor dining will mean strong business for restaurants later this year when the weather is consistently better. Speaking of weather... Clouds over the weekend. We should have overnight tonight overcast skies, temperatures in the mid 40s, strong winds. Tomorrow, more clouds, windy and wet showers off and on, highs only reaching 50. Sunday, still cloudy from Mother's Day, right about 50 degrees. 57 degrees now in Boston at 506. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by CFP, Certified Financial Planner Professionals, focused on providing holistic financial planning from retirement and investments to taxes and estate planning in the client's best interest. Let's make a plan.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Adrian Florido. Last time NPR spoke with Kathleen Pittman, the phone was ringing off the hook at her abortion clinic in Shreveport, Louisiana. 
Many of those calls were coming from Texas, just next door, because Texas had just banned abortion for pregnancies older than six weeks. Fast forward to this week's leak from the Supreme Court signaling it's set to overturn Roe v.ersus Wade. Abortion providers like Pittman are steeling themselves for these sorts of scenes to begin playing out across the country. If Roe is overturned, about a dozen states would ban abortions immediately, with others likely to follow. So we wanted to check in with some abortion rights advocates to see what the past few days have been like and how they're preparing for what might come next. I'm joined now by Kathleen Pittman of the Hope Medical Group for Women in Louisiana. Welcome back to All Things Considered. Thank you for having me. We also have Dr. Aaron King, Executive Director of the Hope Clinic for Women in Granite City, Illinois. Hi. Hi. Nice to be here. And finally, Odile Shalit, who directs the Bridget Alliance, a group that helps women connect with abortion services. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. I understand you all had just attended the National Abortion Federation Conference earlier this week when the draft ruling from the Supreme Court was leaked. You were surrounded by other uh, abortion rights advocates, and I'm wondering what that moment was like. Odile, can I ask you? <laughs> it's hard to capture. I think that the best way to do so is to say that it was a combination of feeling stunned, mad, and a sense of resignation and acceptance that this is something that we knew was coming for a long time and gratitude that unlike many other moments that have been quite similar to this one, in this one, we got to actually, some of us, be together. Kathleen, I want to go to you. It was just eight months ago that your clinic, which is the closest abortion clinic in Louisiana to the Texas border, saw this huge influx of patients after Texas passed uh, SB8. Uh, Does this feel like deja vu? Deja vu all over again. Actually, it does. I had actually returned to my hotel room when a reporter called me and said, have you seen the news? And I'm no, I haven't. She sent it to me. So I, I actually canceled my plan so I could uh, start conferring with our attorneys and my staff. I felt like I needed to do some reassurance there. This was an early draft. And I reminded them, you know, we have overcome so many obstacles. We'll see this through. We'll do what we need to do. And to my staff's credit, The concern was about the women. Not a single employee expressed concern for themselves or their livelihood. Everybody has been worried about the women. Um, As you said before, we had seen such an influx from Texas last fall. And at Hope, we are still operating with a waiting list. On any given day, I have 300 names ready for us to, to reach out to them to schedule that very first appointment. So... Um, I spent my time reassuring and telling them, you know, it's not over, not yet. In order to provide abortion care in Louisiana, you have to be willing to have a certain amount of optimism. Otherwise, we can't get out of bed in the mornings. Dr. Aaron King, I want to go to you. Your, Your clinic is in Granite City, Illinois, just about 10 minutes from the Missouri border where abortion access has already been quite restricted. And Illinois is surrounded by states that have trigger laws, meaning automatic bans would go into effect if Roe is overturned. Uh, How is your clinic preparing for this uh, possible outcome? So you are correct. We actually see about 60% of our patients are from Missouri. They are coming from out of state. 
And we have watched over two years as Missouri has restricted abortion so much that there are just a couple hundred abortions happening in Missouri right now, where there used to be you know, over five to 6,000 at least per year. And so we are extremely worried about the Supreme Court decision that the same thing is going to happen in more states around us. And pretty much every other state that borders Illinois will immediately or over this next several months after a Supreme Court decision will have significant restrictions on abortion, if not a complete ban on abortion. So we've actually been preparing for several years. We are optimistic all the time. We want the best for our patients, but we also are realistic. And to be prepared to even be able to see a small portion of the patients that will need access out of their own states. We've had to add staff, we've added nurses, we've added doctors, we've added appointment types. We have the capacity to expand pretty quickly uh, hours and um, appointments and have been able to, even though we've seen influxes of patients on and off from surrounding states, but no one will be ready for the number of patients that can't access care if the decision from the Supreme Court is anything like the draft that's come out. I imagine you've been getting a lot of phone calls in the last few days. Uh, tell me about who's calling and, and what they're saying to you. Well, the minute the draft decision was leaked, of course, we weren't open at that time. We were open the next morning. We had patients immediately calling, asking, were, were we canceling their appointment because they thought abortion was now illegal in the country? There was a lot of confusion around what access and care was available just the next morning after the leak of a draft. So I can't even imagine the amount of confusion that's going to happen and concern if when the real decision uh, comes comes down. And we were also getting calls from, luckily from supporters saying, what can we do? How can we help? Who can we uh, fund? What funds can we help? What patient support organizations should we turn our attention to? And unfortunately, we also had a very strong protester presence outside of our office for the next several days, um, including actually today. Um, we've seen almost double the number of protesters and a lot more anger and really angry, mean words towards patients and staff entering the building. Are you increasing security? Yes. Kathleen, in Louisiana, are you making plans to scale up your clinic, or are you kind of taking a wait-and-see approach because of the pending restrictions that Louisiana's legislature might pass soon? There is no possibility of scaling up. We have a trigger ban in Louisiana. Should Roe be reversed, um, we would cease to exist, all three clinics in Louisiana. You have to understand, uh, none of the clinics that provide abortion care in Louisiana offer any other type of care because we are dealing with uh, some of the poorest of the poor. There would be issues with, say, if we were to attempt to uh, provide routine GYN care, how is that cost going to be covered? Most of the patients that come to us would qualify for Medicaid because of their income. However, in Louisiana, it's against the law to provide any type of funding, Medicaid or otherwise, to clinics that provide abortion care. So in Louisiana, it's all or nothing. Um, we, we can't do more than abortions. We can't even relocate to expand should we need to without having to apply for a new license, which would not be forthcoming, I assure you. 
um, there's a Planned Parenthood in New Orleans that years ago um, had a new facility, applied for an abortion clinic license, and that has never come to fruition and probably never will. Odile Shalit, uh, your organization, the, the Bridget Alliance, is, is a practical support organization. You help people get across state lines all over the U.S. Describe some of the logistics of that for me. What does it look like to help someone get across state lines to find an abortion that might not be available where they live? Yeah, so at the Bridget Alliance, we cover a wide range of logistical needs. So that can include anything from transportation like flights, bus tickets, train tickets, gas, cash for parking, cash for uh, a rental car service. It can also include lodging, reimbursements for childcare. And critically, we coordinate these things for our clients. Um, As you can imagine, having to access an abortion, having to travel for that, having to negotiate the disruption that that causes to your life is significant enough. Having to then plan a whole trip, especially if you've never traveled out of your state before, which is the case for many folks. There are a lot of people who travel from rural areas, that that can be a significant hindrance to whether someone even tries to travel. So we, our coordinators, our incredible coordinators, spend a lot of time trying to make sure that our clients feel safe in traveling, feel that they have a companion in us, that they are not alone. Um, That means being in touch with them regularly so that they feel that support. So we're really, um, we work with our clients from when we first speak with them all the way until they get home. Uh, Kathleen Pittman in Louisiana, where you are, uh, what kind of patients are you expecting are going to be most affected by this potential uh, forthcoming ruling? I think what we will be seeing most affected would be the marginalized communities, which actually makes up the majority of our patient roster. Um, Most of the women we see here at Hope are living at or below the federal poverty level. The majority are persons of color. The majority already have one or more children at home and are trying to decide what's best for them. We're seeing them having to navigate just to get to our clinic, issues with transportation, issues with childcare, time off work, time off school. Um, Again, it's going to be those who have the least that will suffer the most. I've been speaking with Kathleen Pittman of Hope Medical Group in Shreveport, Louisiana, Odile Shalit of the Bridget Alliance, and Dr. Aaron King of Hope Clinic in Granite City, Illinois. Thank you all so much for being with Thank us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having us. A marble bust cost an antiques collector $34.99 at a thrift store in Austin. Turns out it was 2,000 years old. How a Roman sculpture wound up in Texas tomorrow on Weekend Edition. Tune in on your radio or ask your smart speaker to play NPR or your station by name. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Coming up on All Things Considered, unexplained cases of hepatitis in kids. Also, a new WNBA season begins today without one of its biggest stars. Center Brittany Griner of Phoenix is still in custody in Russia following allegations of drug smuggling. Business news is coming up next.
We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Native Plant Trust. Enjoy 21 species of trillium in bloom, plus online programs May 9th to 15th at Garden in the Woods in Framingham. Information at nativeplanttrust.org. And Arts Emerson, presenting Seasick. Science journalist Alana Mitchell's one-woman mission to find hope in the face of climate change, May 11th to 22nd at the Paramount. Wall Street stocks fell, but not as dramatically as they did yesterday. The Dow gave up a third of a percent, 99 points, to close at 32,899. This was the sixth straight week the Dow's had a losing week. S&P lost more than a half percent to end the session at 41.23. The Nasdaq fell one and a half percent nearly to close at 12,145. Massachusetts is the 10th in the nation in a new ranking of solar energy generation among states. The Solar Energy Industries Association says panel projects in the state produce enough energy to power more than 650,000 homes. California tops the nation's solar production. Tewksbury Country Club is being sold to Treehouse Brewing of Charlton. The brewer says it'll turn the clubhouse into a beer hall and retail store and will continue to operate the golf course. The current owners say all events booked for this year at the Tewksbury Country Club will go on as planned. It's 519. WBUR supporters include Dana-Farber Brigham Cancer Center. When it comes to cancer, it matters where you start and when you start. Don't wait. Visit youhaveus.org. And Comcast Business, helping protect small businesses with Comcast Business Security Edge. Powering possibilities. Comcast Business Internet required. Restrictions apply. Overcast and windy tonight, about 47 for a low. Highs tomorrow and Sunday, only around 50 degrees. Tomorrow should be the damper of the two days. Intermittent showers, still windy. Sunday, cloudy, windy once again. 57 degrees now in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from C3AI. C3AI software enables organizations to use artificial intelligence at enterprise scale, solving previously unsolvable problems. C3AI is Enterprise AI. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Adrian Florido. And I'm Ari Shapiro. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention said today it's investigating more than 100 potential cases of severe hepatitis in children, including five deaths. Cases have been reported in 25 states and territories, but the cause of the liver illness remains unknown. Several hundred similar cases have been reported in more than two dozen countries. NPR health correspondent Maria Godoy is covering this story for us. Welcome. Hi, Ari. What more can you tell us about these cases in the U.S.? The CDC is looking into 109 cases. All of the children were previously healthy. Hepatitis is a swelling of the liver, and in nearly all of these cases, the injury to the liver was severe enough that the children needed to be hospitalized. Most of the children have recovered, but, you know, uh, some of the more, um, but 14% did end up needing a liver transplant, and unfortunately, five of the children died. This has happened so quickly. When the CDC first issued the alert, it was just two weeks ago, and there were only nine cases. What's behind the big jump? So these nine cases were first seen in Alabama between October and February, but the situation got more global attention in April after UK health authorities issued an alert about a similar illness. The majority of cases were in children age five and under. 
That prompted U.S. health officials to issue an alert and to cast a wider net looking at potential cases. They stress that this investigation is still evolving, and it may turn out that some of these are unrelated. Now, hepatitis does occur in children, but it's rare. And while U.K. officials say they are seeing more cases than usual, the CDC says for now it's not. I mentioned that the cause of the illness is unknown, but do researchers suspect a link to COVID? They're still investigating this, but health officials stress this is definitely not being caused by the COVID vaccine. Most of the children affected are too young to have been vaccinated. As for COVID itself, officials say they aren't aware of these hepatitis cases in kids with COVID, although they are looking for evidence of possible past infection. So what other possible causes are they looking into? Uh, Well, hepatitis is usually caused by strains of the hepatitis virus known as A through E, but all of those have been ruled out. Right now, the leading suspect is a strain of adenovirus. That's a common virus that usually causes mild cold or flu-like symptoms or stomach and intestinal problems. A good number of these children have tested positive for adenoviruses, but there are also other hypotheses being looked at. It's possible that a combination of factors has left kids more susceptible to getting severely ill when infected with adenovirus. For example, if they'd previously been infected with another virus, including possibly the coronavirus. If parents are concerned about this, what should they be looking out for in their kids? The CDC stresses that severe hepatitis remains rare in children, but it does advise that parents of young children be aware of the symptoms of hepatitis. That includes vomiting, dark urine, stool that's light and colored, and yellowing of the skin. And of course, if you're at all concerned, contact your pediatrician. That's NPR's Maria Godoy. Thank you. My pleasure. A new WNBA season gets underway today without one of the league's biggest stars. Brittany Griner, center for the Phoenix Mercury, remains in Russian custody on an allegation of drug smuggling. For years, Griner has played in Russia to make more money. That's something many WNBA players go overseas to do. The league will honor Griner in her absence, but it's also pushing back on the notion that it's not doing enough to fairly compensate athletes. NPR's Tom Goldman reports. It was one headline, but could have been many since Brittany Griner was wrongfully detained in February. It read, How Low WNBA Salaries Led to an American Basketball Superstar's Detainment in Russia. And it rankled the WNBA. The narrative that the only choice for WNBA players to make additional income overseas, I think, is outdated and inaccurate. League Commissioner Kathy Engelbert says before she took over three years ago, it probably was accurate. But thanks to a widely praised labor deal in 2020, she says the chance for more WNBA money is there. Top players now have the opportunity to make 500 to 650 k including all their opportunities. Such as? League and team marketing deals where we put a million dollars plus on the table for players in the offseason as long as they don't go overseas. Last month, Engelbert said there were 29 such deals with more expected. Benajah Laney of the New York Liberty was one of the first players to sign a league deal. She's played in Israel and Australia, but would rather not. I like to be home and to be able to experience birthdays, experience holidays with my family, and going overseas, that's just something that you don't get the opportunity to do. Laney's league and team deals require everything from social media posts to, this week, throwing out the first pitch at a New York Mets game. Laney won't say if the deals on top of salary put her in that higher six-figure range. She will say this. 
It is enough for me to stay home and be comfortable. The W wants that to be the norm for its players, but knows league revenues have to swell to make it possible. Engelbert says that means cutting through cultural bias that's historically undervalued women's sports. But there are what she calls signs and signals. Partnership deals with Amazon and Google, and this year investors ponied up $75 million for the WNBA. Engelbert called it a huge step forward in getting an economic model that's worthy of the players. One of the best, Courtney Vandersloot of the defending champion Chicago Sky, acknowledges the league is making strides. But we're not there yet, and so you can't expect players to turn down these type of contracts to be over here to not make the same type of money. Vandersloot, хорошая передача, ну, практически пик and roll. Since 2018, Vandersloot has played in Russia during WNBA off-seasons on the same team as Brittany Griner, a top team well-funded by its oligarch owners. They treated us like professionals, you know, we flew private, they put us in really nice places, they paid us good money, you know, they just really took care of us. Vandersloot knows playing there in the near future is unlikely, but she'd still consider going overseas somewhere, even though WNBA players who do that risk breaking a strict new rule called prioritization. Starting next year, it'll require players to show up for the start of WNBA training camp and then the season or face fines and even a season-long suspension. It's what the players agreed to in the labor contract in exchange for, among other things, higher salaries. Vandersloot appreciates the concept. I agree with it, that we should all be over here. I want to be over here to prioritize the WNBA. But she says it's still a tough decision for top veteran players like her with the continuing lure of overseas money. Starting today, Brittany Griner's initials and uniform number will be featured on all 12 WNBA courts, honoring a missing colleague and serving as a reminder of the league's ongoing challenge to treat the best female basketball players like they are the best. Tom Goldman, NPR News. This is NPR News. This is WBUR. Bruins are hoping a homecoming will turn their luck around tonight. At 7 o'clock, they host the Carolina Hurricanes at the Garden in Game 3 of their first-round playoff series. It's the first home game of the Best of Seven series. Red Sox start up another series at Fenway tonight as the White Sox come to town. It's 5.30. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by AVFX, offering sophisticated event services in person, online, or some combination of the two, bringing them to life at avfx.com events. Cityside Subaru on Route 60 in Belmont, where the Love Spring event is underway, featuring the all-wheel drive Subaru Crosstrek, citysidesubaru.com. And Worcester Polytechnic Institute, whose collaborative research approach aims to yield unexpected results that make a bigger impact. wpi.edu future. 
14 years I've been with Ohio Right to Life. And, um, um, you know, happy is one word, but, uh, you know, in pure transparency, I was nervous, you know, because I said to myself, we've been talking a lot lately about what a post-row Ohio or a post-row America would look like, but now we actually have to do it. I'm Sabrina Tavernisi. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Tonight at 8 on WBUR. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. President Biden is making another push for the administration's plan to increase manufacturing in the United States. Speaking in Cincinnati today, Biden said one of the best ways to fight inflation is to strengthen the resilience of the supply chains. We learned the hard way that we can't fight inflation if supply chains buckle and send prices through the roof every time there's a disruption. Biden also touted the latest jobs report. The Labor Department says employers added 428,000 jobs in April, capping a year of solid growth. The nation's unemployment rate held steady at 3.6 percent. Clinics and groups that provide support to people seeking abortions are bracing for a change in the nation's laws. NPR's Yuki Noguchi reports young women and black and Latina women would be among those disproportionately affected if the Supreme Court's leaked draft opinion takes effect. Those who get abortions in this country are also among the most disadvantaged, young and poor people and racial minorities. Poor access to sex education, insurance, health care and contraception contribute to disproportionately higher rates. According to the most recent data, black and Latino women receive more than half of all abortions. About a third of abortions are performed on white non-Hispanic women. The same people in those populations are also likeliest to lose access to abortions if the Supreme Court's draft ruling stands. That would also trigger state abortion restrictions or bans across about 25 states. Yuki Noguchi, NPR News. Stocks traded lower today on Wall Street. The Dow Jones Industrial Average was down 98 points. The Nasdaq Composite also traded lower, down 173. The S&P 500 fell 23 points. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts officials are promising to remove a pile of construction debris that contains asbestos from near a public housing complex in Chelsea. The material comes from a construction project several miles away in Saugus, and the state says it's been stored in the spot in Chelsea since last summer. More now from WBUR's Miriam Wasser. Chelsea has long suffered a disproportionate burden of harmful industries and pollutants. And its residents, many of whom are lower-income immigrants, have high rates of asthma, heart and lung disease, and cancer. So learning that the state let a pile of debris with asbestos sit uncovered a few hundred feet from where people live infuriated Roseanne Bongiovanni. Bongiovanni is the executive director of Green Roots, a Chelsea-based environmental nonprofit. It is just so frustrating and ridiculous and incomprehensible that the state of Massachusetts is doing this in 2022. The head of the State Department of Transportation apologized for not telling Chelsea officials about the debris and vowed to remove it as soon as possible. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Miriam Wasser. A federally funded initiative in Bristol County to process rape kits that went unprocessed by the state lab has produced an indictment. Bristol County DA Thomas Quinn says 47-year-old Scott Trudeau of Worcester is charged with rape and assault in a 12-year-old unsolved case in New Bedford. 
Quinn says there are 1,100 unprocessed kits from the state lab in Bristol County alone. Prosecutors have said some kits were not processed because of a backlog, technical challenges, and confusion over policies and procedures. Governor Charlie Baker is pushing lawmakers to address the shortage of housing in the state. He says it's important to retain residents. When your average housing price is over $750,000, you make it very hard for people in their 20s and 30s to decide this is where they want to build their future. Baker told a group of business leaders today he wants lawmakers to make it easier for town and city governments to change zoning rules. He says that would allow for more housing construction. It's 535. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Mass Cultural Council, committed to supporting a diverse, inclusive, and an anti-racist cultural sector in the Commonwealth. Through their racial equity plan and grant-making, Mass Cultural Council is working to better serve artists and organizations. Learn about their grants and services and the power of culture at massculturalcouncil.org. Some strong winds tonight, staying cloudy down in the mid-40s. Cool this weekend should only make it to about 50 with some stiff winds. Heavy cover of clouds both tomorrow and Sunday. 57 degrees now in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from your part-time controller. Your part-time controller is hiring full and part-time accountants to assist nonprofits while working from home and at client offices. More at yourparttimecontroller.com slash employment. And from Zoom, used by half a million businesses, a platform for phone, chat, workspaces, events, apps, and video, enabling real-time collaboration for teams around the globe. Zoom, how the world connects. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Adrian Florido. And I'm Ari Shapiro. A new law in Alabama bans gender-affirming medical treatments for anyone under 19. It's set to take effect on Sunday. Today, a federal judge is considering whether it can move forward. Families of transgender youth argue that allowing enforcement would cause irreparable harm. Attorneys for Alabama say the law will protect children from risky interventions that they may later regret. NPR's Debbie Elliott has been covering a two-day hearing in Montgomery. Hi, Debbie. Hi, Ari. You told us yesterday about the arguments that lawyers made on behalf of the parents of trans young people. Today, lawyers for the state of Alabama presented their witnesses. How are they defending this transgender medical treatment ban? You know, the general theme has been to portray these gender-affirming medicines. We're talking about puberty blockers or cross-sex hormone therapy, for instance, as risky, as unproven, and as experimental interventions. A 23-year-old woman testified that she regretted trying to transition from female to male using testosterone therapy when she was 19 and in the state of Georgia. She said she was under a mental delusion at the time. Then there was testimony from Toronto clinical psychologist James Cantor, who said that a majority of youth who were diagnosed with gender dysphoria later desist, meaning that they uh, change their minds and identify with the sex that they were assigned at birth. He testified that there's no medical consensus in the U.S. Now, he says this despite the fact that most major medical associations consider gender-affirming treatments an accepted standard of care for transgender 
adolescence. Under cross-examination, he did acknowledge that he treats adults and has no knowledge of how transgender youth are diagnosed and treated in Alabama. He was also forced to agree that some studies have shown that gender-affirming medical care improves mental health outcomes for some transgender youth. So if this law is allowed to take effect on Sunday, what would it do? Well, it would become a a felony punishable by 10 years in prison for parents and youth to seek or for doctors to provide gender-affirming medical treatments or surgeries for anyone under 19 years old. The families who have sued say this is an unconstitutional infringement on parental autonomy and discriminates against these youth. The U.S. Justice Department agrees and has intervened in this case. Plaintiffs presented testimony Thursday for medical professionals who say banning the treatments would have a devastating impact and could raise the risk of suicide and other emotional problems for these teenagers. Uh, Doctors also testify that the law puts them in in this position where they're forced forced to choose between obeying the law or abandoning their oath to do no harm and face conviction. There's a tight timeline here. So how does the case resolve? Well, now it's up to U.S. District Judge Lyles Burke to decide whether or not to block enforcement of the law while the plaintiffs pursue these constitutional questions. We should note that a federal judge in Arkansas blocked a similar law in that state. And based on uh, questions in the Alabama courtroom, Judge Burke is very aware of that ruling. During uh, closing arguments uh, this evening, plaintiff's attorney Jeffrey Doss told the judge that Alabama's law criminalizes a parent's concern and love for a child and violates fundamental parental freedom. Alabama Solicitor General Edmund LaCour on the other side argued that the state has a wide discretion to regulate areas of medical uncertainty. So we're just waiting on Judge Burke to decide, and Sunday is that deadline. NPR's Debbie Elliott, thank you. You're welcome, Ari. Emergency rental aid has kept millions of people in their homes during the pandemic. But the last of that federal funding will be will be allotted this summer, and some places are running out of money already. NPR's Jennifer Ludden reports that is sending evictions way up. For Wayne Meshke in Plymouth, Minnesota, eight months of federal rental aid was a huge relief. The 61-year-old works in hospitality and says his company was devastated when COVID hit. He then missed more work with a case of breakthrough COVID last fall. His income has still not recovered. It's like a wave. There'll be a month that it's okay, and then I'll go three months that it's not. But in January, Minnesota's rental assistance program ran out of its share of money and shut down. Meshke's aid stopped in April, then came an eviction notice. I have five adult kids. I may have to go live with one of them in their houses. Since Minnesota's aid program shut down, eviction filings are way up. The same thing's happening in Houston. Our tenants are having to decide between buying food for their children or their elderly parents or paying rent. And that's a real tight squeeze. Donna Carney is with Lone Star Legal Aid, and she says this is happening even though Houston was given more money after its rental aid first ran out. It's part of an effort to shift funds to where they're needed most. But not all landlords or property managers help tenants get that aid. Janie Mendoza is a single mother of six in Houston and fighting an eviction notice. The one manager that was helping me from before, once she left and another manager came in, it just turned everything upside down. Even if all worked well, Attorney Carney says the rental aid that's left is not nearly enough. At the moment, we're seeing an outrageous number of filings every week, and I don't think it's going down. 
not only anytime soon, but maybe ever again. Diane Yentel has the same worry. She heads the National Low-Income Housing Coalition. The longer we go past the time the eviction protections or resources are gone, the more we're seeing in some of these cities eviction filing rates reach 150%, 200% of pre-pandemic averages. Now, that's not happening everywhere, and some cities are doing a lot to try and help people before they're evicted. The eviction lab at Princeton University tracks filings in six states and 31 cities. Researcher Peter Hepburn says after the national eviction moratorium ended last August, numbers rose slowly. But this spring, as rental aid programs have started closing, eviction filings overall have reached nearly the same level as before the pandemic. There's no limit on landlords' ability to use the courts to evict people, and there's less incentive for them to try an alternative because the money that was there that could make them whole again, that could pay back rent, is no longer there in a lot of cases. The end of rental aid hits landlords too, says Greg Brown of the National Apartment Association, especially small ones with months of unpaid rent and bills. And he says this moment comes as the country's larger affordable housing crisis has only grown worse. Rents skyrocketed in the past year, supply chain problems, and now inflation are slowing badly needed new construction. It's kind of amazing that all this has happened right around the same time, and it's a real tenuous situation for both providers and developers and residents. He says housing is so tight, occupancy rates nationally have hit a record 97 percent. Higher than that in some markets. I actually have a member who told me uh, two weeks ago that they have 8,000 units and they have eight vacancies out of 8,000. Brown says this crisis needs a long-term fix. For now, as federal rental aid runs out, the Biden administration is urging states and cities to step in and help those still struggling to stay in their homes. Jennifer Lutton, NPR News, Washington. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. In Egypt, authorities have freed dozens of political prisoners in recent days, among them prominent journalists, activists, and lawmakers jailed by the government of President Abdel Fattah el-Sisi as part of a years-long crackdown on free speech. Despite these releases, many thousands of Egyptians are thought to still be in prison on what critics say are mostly bogus charges. Joining us to discuss this is Miret Mabruk. She is the founding director of the Egypt program at the Middle East Institute here in Washington. Uh, welcome. Thank you so much. What do we know about why these people were released? Generally speaking, there is a, an annual amnesty drive. Um, it's usually done around Aids and always on Sinai Liberation Day. And there would always be people released. What was interesting this time is that among the people released were um, political detainees. And typically speaking, that has not happened for a while. So for a lot of people, it's something hopeful. And these dozens of political detainees who were released as part of this broader amnesty for thousands of mm -hmm. people, why were they arrested in the first place? 
generally speaking, since 2013, room for um, freedom of expression and political dissent in Egypt has shrunk perceptibly. So many of these people have been detained on charges of joining a terrorist organization, on charges of releasing incorrect information harmful to the state. So it's, it's generally the sort of charge that says you have said the wrong thing and we don't like it. Well, President Sisi has been in office since shortly after the military coup that removed President Mohamed Morsi in 2013. Uh, And he's faced intense criticism for political repression from the start. But recently, the U.S. withheld some aid to Egypt over human rights concerns. And I'm wondering if you think it's possible that the release of these political prisoners is a direct response to that pressure. Egypt does not respond well to external pressure. It never has. So no, these releases, I I don't think are at all a response to that. Um, I think that they're a response to internal pressure. And I think in Egypt's case, there is a realization perhaps that they, they need to reopen up the political sphere. Now, the other good news is that the president is calling for national dialogue. And there are people who think that it is serious this time. Egypt has taken other steps aside from what you've just mentioned to seemingly sort of try to open up the political sphere. It ended the long-time state of emergency. Uh, It established a national human rights strategy. Uh, Are these meaningful steps, do you think? Whether or not they're meaningful depends on how the government decides to proceed. Okay. It's, It's kind of like saying that you are going to go on a diet, but then, you know, having a muffin in the morning or something. So I think people are waiting to see how the government decides to proceed. And so are there specific things that you are keeping an eye on to to signal how the government intends to actually handle free speech issues going forward? Yeah, there are a few things. Um, The release of more political prisoners would be welcome. But I think um, more basically, uh, there needs to be a discussion on alternatives to detention. Basically, the way you treat prisoners is going to be indicative of how serious the government is. Are you going to lock them up? Or are you going to try and find a different way, possibly more humane way of dealing with them? Miret Mabruk is with the Middle East Institute. Thank you. You're very welcome. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBUR, the president of one major anti-abortion group says even if the Supreme Court overturns Roe v. Wade, the organization's goals will not have been met. We are going to work with the states to see what kind of legislation they can pass. We are going to continue our educational efforts. That's still to come on WBUR. There's no for drivers. There will be lane restrictions on Interstate 93 in Wilmington as crews finish repairs to the Route 125 bridge over the highway again this weekend. The southbound lanes on Route 93 will be shut down from 9 tonight until 5 o'clock Monday morning. The on-ramp to 125 will also be closed. Get used to the clouds. They're likely going to stick around for the weekend. Tonight, overcast and windy, about 47 for a low. Highs tomorrow and Sunday, just about 50 degrees. Tomorrow should be the damper of the two days. Intermittent showers, still windy. Then for Sunday, cloudy, windy once again. Sunshine returns in time for Monday. 57 degrees now in Boston at 549.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Pops. Enjoy film nights, Broadway stars, a gospel performance, and a celebration of the musical legacy of Duke Ellington and Billy Strayhorn. BostonPops.org. Hi, this is Bill, and I donated my 2003 Ford truck to Public Radio. The local reporting is fantastic, and the weekend shows that are some of the larger NPR shows, oh, every week listen to Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. It's, it's wonderful stuff. It really is great. Learn more at WBUR.org slash cars. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Adrian Florido. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Since Texas passed an anti-abortion law in September, more and more women have been going to unregulated pharmacies in Mexican border towns to get abortion pills. As NPR's John Burnett reports, this last resort option could be a sign of what's to come for many others if the Supreme Court overturns Roe v. Wade. The main street of Nuevo Progreso, Mexico, just across the sluggish Rio Grande from Westlaco, Texas, is a chaotic border bazaar that caters to American day trippers. Hey, sir, you're looking for something? Prescription eyeglasses, dental fillings, switchblades, tequila shots, and over-the-counter medicine. Pharmacy? You can buy many medications in pharmacies here without a prescription, including the pills that have transformed the way women are ending pregnancies. Today, more than half of all abortions in the United States are achieved by what's called a medication abortion, as opposed to a traditional surgical abortion. The FDA has approved mifepristone and misoprostol as safe and effective in the first 10 weeks of pregnancy. An employee in Garcia's pharmacy named Walter Garza has noticed a sharp increase in a certain clientele. You should see how many girls come and try to get an abortion. A lot, like crazy. He says the two-pill combination, along with his consultation about how to use them, is $400. But he's not a doctor. He's not even a pharmacist. And where did you learn how to give them advice, medical advice? A doctor. Yeah. A doctor told you. <laughs> yeah. But you're not trained to give them advice. No. No, I'm not. A Texas law that went into effect last September all but outlaws abortions after six weeks. And with the U.S. Supreme Court poised to overturn Roe v. Wade, these bans are expected to become more common nationwide. A woman down in the Rio Grande Valley who wants to visit a clinic with the fewest restrictions has to drive 14 hours to Las Cruces, New Mexico. Or she can drive a half hour to the border and visit a Mexican pharmacy. Under the new law, physicians in Texas are forbidden from prescribing abortion pills. Planned Parenthood and other organizations have posted detailed information online about how to take abortion pills and what to expect. But some customers may just rely on the pharmacy clerk for their information. And the problem with that, of course, becomes the regulation aspect. Carla Angelo Pazel is a political scientist at the University of Texas Rio Grande Valley. We don't know if they have been FDA approved. And then you have the problem of not even needing a prescription. So there is no actual medical attention given to these women. Women are just, you know, out of desperation. There can be complications, says Dr. Roberto Diaz-Gonzalez, an OBGYN at the Brownsville Community Health Center. Probably the most common complication with the medication will be incomplete abortion. That means that the, not all the tissue came out. And if the patient don't go and look for care, that can create an infection. With Texas's strict anti-abortion law, women in the Rio Grande Valley have had a foretaste of a post-Roe world, but activists have resisted. Nancy Cardenas Pena is Texas State Director for the National Latina Institute for Reproductive Justice. People in red states still deserve access to abortion care. Um, and so we'll continue fighting every single step of the way. 
in areas like the Rio Grande Valley. She offers two examples of pushing back when the city of Edinburgh, Texas, tried to declare itself a, quote, sanctuary for the unborn last summer after hours of public comments against the ordinance, it went nowhere. And last month, when a 26-year-old woman was arrested and jailed for murder in Rio Grande City for having a self-induced abortion, the abortion rights community swung into action to win her release. Ultimately, the charges were dropped. John Burnett, NPR News, McAllen, Texas. Nearly one million people have died in the U.S. from COVID-19 since the pandemic began. NPR has been remembering some of those who died through the music that gave their lives meaning. We called these tributes Songs of Remembrance. Today, English teacher Bobby Texel remembers his co-worker Dennis DiCarlo, a woodshop teacher at Pompton Lakes High School in New Jersey. Dennis and Bobby worked together for years on the school's musical productions. Dennis would get very creative in the sets he would construct. He would use wood when he could, but he would use foam core as well. And he was always very particular. He always textured the sets and brought special aspects to them. Um, sometimes he'd put little jokes in that only he and the students knew about. I think the most telling thing about Dennis as a teacher, though, was the fact that many students openly called him dad. And he really embodied that, not just for the students, but for us at school. There would be many times when I'd walk into Dennis's room, you know, with a sort of anxiety about the show <laughs> or an interaction or a lesson that went wrong, and I would come out with a smile or a laugh, and I would just feel better after interacting with him. Before the pandemic, we were, we were almost ready to go on our production of Mamma Mia, and um, my last memory of Dennis was uh, meeting him to discuss pushing back the musical by a couple weeks and having him reassure me that everything was going to be okay and that, you know, the show must go on. And we walked out and then that was it. That was the last time I saw him. Sometimes people leave you halfway through the wood. He fell ill pretty quickly and you know, eventually things got worse and he passed away. And um, that was not easy. And uh, I still miss him dearly. Mother isn't here now. Who knows what she'd say? So then the next year came around and uh, I was very scared about doing the musical. It got to the point where I felt like I didn't want to do it. I was wondering if we could have a year off, <laughs> you know, because it was just so nerve wracking. But my co-director said, would you do it if we did Into the Woods? And he knew that that was my favorite show. <laughs> and I couldn't say no to that. And we dedicated it to his memory. We put his picture in the program. And uh, that felt good. But you are not alone. Believe me, no one is alone. No one is alone. Is the second to last song in the entire show. It's sung by four characters, the baker, Little Red Riding Hood, Cinderella and Jack and each of them have lost somebody and together all four characters weave this idea that even though you might feel alone you aren't alone someone is on your side no one is alone someone is on your side Dennis was our someone and you know we certainly felt alone after he was gone but the beauty of Into the Woods, the beauty of No One is Alone, got me through, and I hope that it got others through. 
That was Bobby Texel speaking about his co-worker and friend, Dennis DiCarlo, who died from COVID on May 3rd, 2020. You can visit our tribute, NPR's Songs of Remembrance, at npr.org. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments is a fiduciary, which means they always put clients' interests first. Fisher Investments, clearly different money management. Investing in securities involves the risk of loss. And from Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from your part-time controller, your part-time controller is hiring full and part-time accountants to assist nonprofits while working from home and at client offices. More at yourparttimecontroller.com employment. This is WBUR. Cloudy skies have moved in for the weekend. Tonight, overcast, some strong winds, lows in the mid-40s. Tomorrow should be damp, showers off and on, some gusty winds up to about 30 miles an hour, highs around 50. And then not much change for Sunday, just a little bit drier, still windy, still gray, still right about 50 degrees. 57 degrees now in Boston at 559. This is 90.9 WBUR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Dedham Community Theatre, celebrating independent film. Now showing The Duke and Petite Maman, and reopened every day. Visit DedhamCommunityTheatre.com. I'm here and now host Scott Tong, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR. Boston's NPR news station. U.S. employers added 428,000 jobs last month as the unemployment rate held steady at 3.6 percent. Stiff competition for workers is pushing up wages. That has inflation watchdogs concerned. It's Friday the 6th of May. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, the nomination for a new U.S. ambassador to Ukraine after the post was vacant for three years. And on Marketplace this evening, the high price of holding events such as the Gathering of Nations powwow in New Mexico. The event was in person once again. Vendors had to shell out a lot. Cost of even me getting here, you know, the gas was, you know, hundreds of dollars coming here. This booth space alone was $750. That's coming up on Marketplace, which starts at 6.30. It's 6.01 news headlines and the numbers from Wall Street down once again, but not as much as yesterday. That's all coming up. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The U.S. has sent to Ukraine nearly all of the 90 howitzers it recently promised that country. It has also trained or is training several hundred troops on how to use them. As NPR's Greg Myrie explains, the fighting in eastern Ukraine increasingly relies on heavy artillery. 
Pentagon spokesman John Kirby says the U.S. is rapidly providing weapons and training to the Ukrainians for stepped-up fighting in the eastern region known as the Donbass. As the war migrated uh, more towards a concentration on the Donbass, flat, open land, uh, more rural, so we have modified and tailored the, the packages that we're providing. Over the past couple weeks, the U.S. has trained or is training 370 Ukrainian soldiers on the howitzers. Some of the artillery guns are already being used in combat. The fighting in eastern Ukraine is along a front stretching some 300 miles, though neither side is making substantial gains. Greg Myrie, NPR News, Washington. The judge is dismissing former President Donald Trump's lawsuit challenging his suspension from Twitter. In a written opinion, the San Francisco judge rejecting Trump's argument the social media platform violated his freedom of speech rights under the First Amendment by kicking him off the platform. Twitter, along with some other social media platforms, banned Trump from their services after a mob of his supporters attacked the U.S. Capitol on January 6 of 2021, seeking to overturn the election. That followed a speech by Trump where he recycled false and debunked claims the election was stolen from him. That assertion was rejected by multiple courts and state elections officials. New Mexico is expecting to have historically bad weather conditions for the next several days, including 100 hours of constant wind gusts and high temperatures. Member station KUNM Bryce Dix reports that spells disaster for six active wildfires burning in the state. The National Weather Service says the incoming roller coaster of winds is unprecedented and is sounding the alarm to fire officials. New Mexico Governor Michelle Luan Grisham held a press conference to warn those who might choose to not leave wildfire evacuation zones. Please be careful. I mean, I don't even know what else to say. There's just no way that we can get in and protect you. We can't. She says winds of up to 70 miles per hour and beyond are expected. This announcement has prompted the city of Las Vegas, New Mexico, to see its first evacuations with others on standby. The nearby Hermit's Peak Calf Canyon fire has forced over 16,000 homes to be evacuated, while 1,300 firefighters battle the blaze. For NPR News, I'm Bryce Dix in Albuquerque. Employers continue to add jobs last month, extending what has been a solid uptick in hiring. The Labor Department reporting today hiring increased by 428,000 last month with the unemployment rate at 3.6 percent, its lowest level in 50 years. A wild end of the week on Wall Street, the Dow down 98 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu is backing the school committee's decision to close the Mission Hill School in Jamaica Plain. The mayor said today the closure at the K-8 school is long overdue. An independent report commissioned by the school district found years of sexual misconduct by students, bullying, and academic failure at the school. The city of Brookline and several of its residents have filed an appeal of a decision that prevents the town from banning the use of natural gas in new construction. Attorney General Maura Healy decided the ordinance Brookline wanted to enact violates state law. Jesse Gray is director of the climate advocacy group Zero Carbon MA, which supports the town's effort. He says the appeal to the Supreme Judicial Court will argue that Healy's rejection is based on outdated law. There's also state law that's newer that says that we have to reduce our emissions, and that is from a ruling from the SJC. And so she's saying we conflict with utility law, but utility law also conflicts with other state statutes. 
The attorney general's office says it's still reviewing Brookline's complaint. Boston University announced today its largest tuition hike in 14 years. However, BU President Robert Brown said the four and a quarter percent increase in the fall will not keep up with inflation and will not cover rising costs and salary increases. Earlier this spring, Boston College decided to increase its tuition by nearly four percent. The UMass system is raising tuition by two and a half percent. Hundreds of Massachusetts nurses want better pay and more staffing to address what they say are worsening conditions on the job. A Massachusetts Nurses Association survey finds 83 percent of its nurses who are surveyed say hospital care is deteriorating. That's the highest percent in the eight years the survey's been conducted. Association Vice President Marie Ritaco says one quarter of nurses think they will leave the field within two years. Nurses are exhausted and they realize that there are other things that go into recruiting and retaining nurses. And that does include adequate and appropriate commensurate pay and benefits. The Massachusetts Health and Hospital Association says hospitals have delivered high-quality care in the pandemic and are working hard to fill more than 20,000 open jobs. The State Department of Transportation is vowing to remove a pile of debris containing asbestos from Chelsea as soon as possible and take it out of state. The department dumped the debris along Route 1 near a public housing complex in Chelsea. The contaminated material came from a bridge construction project two miles away in Saugus. The state is apologizing for not telling Chelsea officials they plan to store the debris there. In the forecast over the weekend, strong winds overnight tonight, staying cloudy down around the mid-40s. Pretty cool this weekend. Should only make it to about 50. Some strong winds, a heavy cover of clouds tomorrow and Sunday. The off chance of a shower tomorrow, a little bit drier on Sunday. 57 degrees now in Boston at 6.07. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Imaginable Futures, supporting the book Pregnant Girl, a story of teen motherhood, college, and creating a better future for young families. Written by Generation Hope founder Nick Colin Lewis, generationhope.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Adrian Florido. If the Supreme Court does overturn Roe v. Wade next month, it'll be a huge win for groups opposed to abortion. Overturning that landmark decision has been the motivating force for groups like the National Right to Life Committee for decades. So if they do notch this victory, we wanted to know where will they focus their efforts next. Carol Tobias is president of the National Right to Life Committee, and she joins us now. Welcome. Thanks, Adrian. The leaked draft of the Supreme Court opinion overturning Roe is just that, a draft. But assuming it holds, uh, where does your organization go next? So we are going to work with the states to see what kind of legislation they can pass. We are going to continue our educational efforts because um, we realize that there are still many in the country that are unaware of the humanity of the unborn child, or maybe they are, but don't quite see the need for protecting that innocent life. So we still have a a big battle ahead of us. What kind of abortion restrictions does your group, the NRLC, support? A a total ban on abortions? A a ban after conception? Our ideal position would be abortion only if the mother's life is in danger. Our reasoning is that we want to protect as many babies as we can as soon as we can. So some of the states are not going to be where we are, obviously, but we'll see if there you know, are some, some limits, some protections that we can get through. What about uh, forms of contraception like IUDs that can theoretically prevent an embryo from implanting into the uterus? 
we would encourage women to talk to their medical provider. And if this is, you know, any form that is, it's labeled contraception, but it might actually work after uh, fertilization has taken place and a new life is forming, we would encourage them to talk to the medical provider and find out how it works. And if it is going to end the life of that uh, newborn being, then don't do it. But will you be advocating for forms of contraception like IUDs to be criminalized? That, that quite frankly, is one of the ones. It, it's hard to really know what, what is happening, and, and I don't know how that would ever be regulated or monitored. You know, we're just going to encourage people to choose life for their babies. Uh, do you think that women who violate abortion bans in their state uh, should go to prison? No. No. In many cases, quite frankly, they are the victims. Many of them uh, will say that they got the abortion because their partner pushed them to do it. We certainly know that there are women who go through it knowing full well what is happening. Our goal is to get abortionists to stop killing babies. We, we have never advocated for penalties for women. People choose abortions for many reasons. Some women just don't want a baby. Some don't have the means or support structure uh, to raise a child. And yet our country doesn't have a whole lot of federal policies like family leave, guaranteed daycare, preschool, a child tax credit that a lot of advocates believe would actually make it possible for Americans to raise children, especially middle-income and low-income families. What kind of lobbying have you done for these sorts of uh, family-friendly policies? I'm actually pleased that we are starting to see much more action from the states in programs to help a woman in, in need. Uh, there are several of them, like uh, Missouri has a, a Show Me Healthy Babies program that would prov you know, provide um, health care and support for a woman and a, a newborn child. Um, Oklahoma and Arkansas have Every Mom Matters Act. Uh, we've got states like Texas and South Carolina um, actually providing health care for uh, a new mom and her baby, you know, for the first uh, couple years of, of life, in-home nursing visits to make sure that everything is going okay. Um, there is certainly more that we can and should do so that no woman would think abortion is her, her best or only option. The the anti-abortion movement has been very closely aligned with the Republican Party, which generally has rejected strengthening the social safety net. Uh, do you think that Republicans will have an obligation to do that if Roe is overturned? I think we are seeing much more receptiveness uh, from them in, in those lines. And I know for much of it, it's, you know, we only have so much money and, you know, how is it going to be spent? Uh, we would certainly encourage them to make uh, moms and uh, their babies a priority when they're looking at various programs. Carol Tobias is president of the National Right to Life Committee. Thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks, Adrian. We got some good news and some not so good news about the job market today. Employers are adding a lot of jobs and wages are going up at a rapid pace. But those wage gains are not keeping pace with the high cost of living. And there's a danger that rising wages will make inflation even worse. NPR Scott Horsley joins us with details on today's jobs report. Hey, Scott. Hi. Uh, job growth has been really strong for some time now. What stands out about April's numbers? 
That's right. U.S. employers added more than 400,000 jobs for the 12th month in a row in April. Uh, it's been a really remarkable string of gains. That's uh, more than double the average number of jobs we were adding in the year before the pandemic. Last month saw lots of hiring in factories, in restaurants, in warehouses. Hotels added 22,000 jobs in April. Burrett Patel is a second-generation hotel owner in Sarasota, Florida. He says hotels need more front desk clerks and housekeepers because a lot more people are traveling right now, and so more of his rooms are booked. Rates are through the roof. People want to travel, and so instead of going abroad, or they're really enjoying the beaches and the national parks, the state parks, and you know, people just want to get out. Like a lot of employers, Patel says he's boosting wages to attract the workers he needs. Average wages in April were up 5.5% from a year ago. So this remains a a really hot job market. In fact, it's a little too hot for the inflation watchdogs at the Federal Reserve. Why too hot? What what is the Fed worried about? The Fed's concerned that employers are going to pass these costs of higher wages along in higher prices. And that could make inflation, which is already at a 40-year high, even worse. That's why this week the Fed uh, raised interest rates uh, by half a percentage point in hopes of cooling off inflation. Uh, The Fed also telegraphed additional uh, similar-sized rate hikes could be in store in June and July. And how will rising interest rates affect the job market? Well, the rising cost of borrowing is designed to temper demand, and we might be getting a sneak preview in the housing market. The average cost of a home mortgage has jumped sharply in anticipation of the Fed's actions. It's now above five and a quarter percent. And Robert Dietz, who's chief economist with the National Association of Home Builders, says the industry is feeling that pinch. The housing market is definitely slowing at this point. Uh, the, The rise in mortgage rates has harmed housing affordability, particularly for prospective first-time buyers. It's not just the rate itself, but it's the down payment. Now, Dietz doesn't expect a collapse in housing, but, you know, construction companies added only 2,000 workers last month, which is a big slowdown from the months before. Some other businesses that thrived during the pandemic, like Amazon and Clorox, have also reported a slowdown in their need for workers. And this is kind of what the Fed wants to see throughout the economy, some cooling of demand and inflation, but not so much cooling that it tips the economy into recession. So on balance, was this a good jobs report? It was. It was very good. Uh, The unemployment rate held steady at 3.6 percent. That's the lowest since the start of the pandemic. Unemployment among African-Americans and Latinos actually declined. One disappointing piece in this report, though, the labor force actually shrank in April after big gains in February and March. You'd like to see the labor force growing to provide some additional breathing room in what remains a very, very tight labor market. It's NPR's chief economics correspondent, Scott Horsley. Thank you. You're welcome. In a new French film, a 1960s college student discovers that she must cope with a life-changing event almost entirely on her own. Critic Bob Mandelo says that the film, Happening, is a period piece that speaks to this particular moment. The French countryside, 1963. Anne and her gal pals are at a university party, Anne being the only one who talks to the boys, to a fireman, actually, who's crashed the party. He's handsome enough, but Anne's a little preoccupied, and the next day, when she goes to the doctor, a quick pelvic exam reveals why. You've had sexual relations, the doctor asks. No, never, she says. A boyfriend? But now he knows better. Removing his gloves, he's matter of fact. You're pregnant, he tells her. 
She sits up in alarm. Do something, she whispers. And now it's his turn for alarm. You can't ask me that, nor anybody else, he tells her. The law is unsparing. Anyone who helps you can end up in jail. Anne, played by newcomer Anna Maria Bartolome, steals herself. Her university career is just beginning. Having a child would derail it, but who can she turn to? Not her girlfriends, who she correctly guesses would shame her if they knew. Other doctors? Dangerous. Her parents? Not after their sacrifices so she could study. The one guy at school she's close to? That's a real mistake. As the weeks tick by, director Audrey Dewan, working from an autobiographical novel by Annie Ernaux, shows Anne growing ever more desperate, in the library afraid to be seen even reading about pregnancy, distracted by worry to the point that she's likely to be kicked out of school. If she could find an abortion provider, she'd have to sell her most precious belongings, her books, to pay for an agonizing procedure, and even then her travails wouldn't be over, either physical or psychological. As she tells a doctor who is sympathetic but still can't help her, she wants someday to have children, but not instead of a life. Anne's is a wrenching journey that feels at first as if it's going to play like a historical object lesson, but Bartolome brings such urgency to the heroine that nothing about what happens in happening feels past tense. Given current events, it feels all too timely. I'm Bob Mandela. Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered, the job ahead for the next U ambassador to Ukraine. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Welch and Forbes. Over 180 years of experience providing comprehensive estate settlement services for individuals. WelchForbes.com. And William James College Behavioral Health Service Corps, a service year for college graduates who want to earn, learn, and change lives. Apply now. WilliamJames.edu. Wall Street stocks fell today, but not too much. The Dow gave up a third of a percent, 99 points, to close at 32,899. This was the sixth straight week the Dow has had a losing week. S&P lost more than a half percent to end the session at 41.23. The Nasdaq fell nearly one and a half percent to close at 12,145. Marketplace has details coming up at 6.30. It's 6.19. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Clark, where you can experience Sub-Zero and Wolf appliances with a personal consultant to make informed selections for your home. Details at clarkliving.com. And Arts Emerson, presenting Seasick, science journalist Alana Mitchell's one-woman mission to find hope in the face of climate change, May 11th to 22nd at the Paramount. Turn your old car into new news. Keep the programs you love running by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. Overcast and windy tonight, about 47 for a low. Highs tomorrow and Sunday, only about 50 degrees. Tomorrow should be the damper of the two days. Intermittent showers, still windy. Sunday, cloudy and gusty winds once again. Sunshine should return just in time for Monday. 57 degrees now in Boston. WBUR supporters include Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed money at findmassmoney.com. 
building restoration services, hiring architects, engineers, and estimators to solve complex building envelope problems. Buildingrestorationservices.com and WeNeedAVacation.com, specializing in vacation rentals for the Cape and Islands, where vacationers book directly with homeowners. WeNeedAVacation.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Adrian Florido. And I'm Ari Shapiro. The acting U.S. ambassador to Ukraine is preparing for two big transitions. First, the embassy is about to return to Kyiv. They evacuated to Poland early in the war. And the other big change? President Biden has nominated a veteran diplomat to fill the post that's been vacant for three years. In the meantime, the acting U.S. ambassador is shuttling back and forth across the Ukraine-Poland border, and she joins us now from the Polish city of Zhezhov. Kristina Kvin, it is good to talk to you again. Hello, Ari. It's great to join you today. You've been a U.S. diplomat in Ukraine for more than two years, and this week you returned for the first time since Russia started its assault in late February. What was it like for you to set foot back in the country? It was amazing to be back. Uh, I had uh, been wanting to go back since we left, and I was thrilled that my security folks told me that the situation was such that, that it was safe to go back. We did a day trip to Lviv. I met with a wide variety of folks, including the mayor, the governor, and also some of the uh, international organizations and NGO implementers of the humanitarian assistance that has been flowing in. So it was a terrific trip, and I look forward to taking more of them soon. Russia was driven back from Kyiv about a month ago in early April. Why return to the embassy now? And when I say now, I'm actually curious when exactly you are planning to return to the embassy, because that's been a little unclear. Well, we hope to return in the next few weeks. Uh, we're doing our final assessments that would allow us to determine that the security situation is uh, permissive to go back. Uh, even though uh, the Russians did pull back from Kyiv, of course, it uh, continues to be uh, hit by missiles. And uh, I would say that the situation is still not 100% safe. So we have been doing careful reviews of the situation to make sure that when we do go back, that we can be as safe as possible. Can you give us an example of something you're looking forward to being able to do from the U.S. Embassy in Kyiv that you haven't been able to do remotely from Poland? I think the most important thing is to be able to meet with Ukrainian leaders face to face. Of course, we've continued to talk uh, on the phone, on uh, video conferencing, but it's not the same as sitting down with someone face to face and being able to have an in-person conversation. So I think that's going to be the most valuable thing for me uh, is to be able to sit down with my contacts, most of whom I've known a long time. So they're, I, I consider many of them friends, not just contacts and really have a good conversation and get a sense of where things are. The last time we spoke, you talked about the many people in Ukraine who you're close to. Are they all safe as far as you know? Well, um, unfortunately, very sadly, we lost one of my bodyguards. Uh, he was oh. fighting in the East in the military and he was killed uh, by the Russians. My so uh, it, it, it's incredibly um, sad and tragic for the embassy and also obviously for his family. Uh, but he was a hero. I mean, he was fighting in the East for his country when he was killed. And um, so so I would say that the death has touched us even, even in the embassy. Uh, and we don't take for granted. We have many other embassy employees who are fighting. And so we do not mm. take any of that for granted. And we think of them every day and send them our best wishes. 
Wow. Could you share his name with us? Uh, his name was Velodia. We don't use last names just to, for the privacy of the family, but uh, his name was Velodia. Now, President Biden has nominated Bridget Brink to be ambassador and take over for you. She still has to be confirmed by the Senate. But what is your first piece of advice for her going to be after you filled this job in an acting capacity during such an eventful time of the U.S.-Ukraine relationship? Uh, rest up and get lots of sleep. <laughs> well, you still it's can. It's a very busy job, especially these days. Uh, listen, I've known Bridget for over 15 years. She and I worked together in the past. She's fantastic. Uh, she's high energy. She's smart. She knows Ukraine and she knows the whole region. And uh, she'll uh, be a terrific ambassador when confirmed by the Senate. So honestly, I don't have to give her a lot of advice because I think she knows the reason the region so well already uh, that it, she can just step right in and, and be fully effective on the first day. Are you planning to stay at the embassy in Ukraine after she's confirmed? Yeah, actually, you know, it's a three-year assignment, and my three-year assignment is is up this summer. Mm. So I will probably stay just long enough to help her transition and then move on. Now, the last time you and I spoke, I met you in the Polish hotel that's been your base of operations. And, and you noted that although you have a lot of diplomatic experience, you had not served in a war zone before. Uh, it's definitely a different kettle of fish. I mean, there, there are uh, things you need to learn and challenges you need to take on that are different than in uh, a country that is at peace. Um, I've learned a lot of military te uh, terminology that I didn't know before. I've learned a lot about weapons that I didn't know before. Uh, and obviously, I, I would say that all of us on my team here are imbued with the feeling that what we're doing is incredibly important for um, for the health and safety and um, survival of people. And that really motivates us. So whether it's helping to provide more weapons so that the Ukrainians can defend themselves or provide humanitarian support either to those that are inside Ukraine but internally displaced or in need of food, water, and basics, uh, or people who have had to leave Ukraine um, and helping them out outside of the country. All of those things, um, everything we do every day is really focused on, on helping people and, and, and uh, supporting them in a very physical way that I think we don't normally do in a normal environment. So it really motivates us and is one of the reasons that we keep going, you know, more than 12 hours a day, I would say, for most of us, because we feel that, that, that our, our work is really helping people on the ground. When you look at the state of the war at this point, do you see a way for Russia to win? Um, you know, already, frankly, Russia has failed. Russia uh, came into the war thinking that they could quickly overrun Ukraine, that they could perhaps topple the government. Uh, they certainly tried to do that at the beginning, that they could take Kyiv uh, and other strategic cities. And for the most part, they failed. Uh, they've ha been driven back away from Kyiv. President Zelensky and his government are still in place, working hard and fully functional. And now uh, Russia has had to rethink what their objectives are, and they are definitely significantly smaller than they set out to be. So um, uh, do I think Russia can win? I think Russia's already lost, certainly if you judge it by what their initial, uh, initial objectives were. That doesn't mean, though, that uh, Ukraine doesn't have a hard fight ahead of it and that Russia will stop trying uh, sometime soon. So that's why we continue to send in weapons 
uh, and other material and supplies to Ukraine to help them continue to fight the fight against Russia and hopefully drive them out of the country completely. That's certainly, I know, what Ukraine's um, objective is, and we want to help them in meeting that objective. Christina Kveen is the acting U.S. ambassador to Ukraine. Thank you for speaking with us once again. Thank you, Ari. It was good to see you again. Schools are struggling to keep pace with inflation. The rising costs of energy and food are eating into already tight budgets, raising concerns about programs, upkeep, and staffing. That's Monday on All Things Considered. Tune in on your radio or ask your smart speaker to play NPR or your station by name. This is NPR News. I'm Tiziana Deering, and I want to share a little something with you. I am happier and better when I feel connected to my community. Radio Boston does that. Our show is where the town hall meets the kitchen table. And starting Monday morning, we go live at 11 a.m. Join me for Radio Boston weekdays at 11 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Let's make mornings better together.